What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? All two of you. Um, my puppy's over here trying to get attention. What's going on, little one? What's going on? What's going on? Say something to my ear. Say something. Say something. That's not. That's not you saying anything. That wasn't even picked up. Want to say something? Say something. Anyway, she's shy. Come here. You come on. Come here. Okay. So, anyways, um, sorry for the lack of content on this podcast. It's if you don't follow my Instagram, which is primarily where I put out updates and content and whatever, whatever. Like you know, you would or would not know that I've been working a lot on the um, annual goal planning thing that I did this year. And, you know, with that comes my own set of goals, right? Like my own things I'm trying to accomplish before the end of the year. And everything's just kind of come to a halt during the last few months. That's probably the wrong phrase, actually. It's all just kind of piled up at the end of this month, last few months of the year. And so things have just been crazy, stressful and intense and just busy. So producing content for this podcast has been... um, quite difficult primarily because of the the way it's formatted the whole idea of interviewing people and and finding those interviewees so before we kind of get into the to the to the episode i wanted to really apologize to rain rain is the gentleman who you'll be hearing about today on the podcast um another buddy of mine he's a firefighter and he talks he's going to be talking today about you know being a firefighter and what that's like but um and it's a very good podcast, by the way. So, I, but I do want to apologize to Rain because this is one of the ones I did maybe earlier on, and for some reason my scheduling setup was just off to the point where it wasn't. It, I, this got released way after the fact, which is not the way I would have liked. So, once again, apologize to, to apologies to uh, Rain for for that. Um, but either way, this is a very good podcast, and stay tuned to the end of the podcast where. I'll be talking a little bit more about probably the the concepts for this podcast moving forward because if my predictions for 2020 are as as I'm thinking they will be, things will probably change a little bit. So, um, yeah. What else do I have to tell you guys? This craziness. Crazy, busy, crazy, crazy, craziness. Anyways, enjoy the podcast, ladies and gents. All right, so we're live. Um, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Like, I appreciate it. Um, I know we've been trying to schedule this for like <laughs> six months. Right. You're um, busier than me. I don't know what to tell you. I'm not. What? How dare you, sir? How dare you? I got nothing going on except a couple of things I can't talk about. But anyways, um, so I, I want to talk about firefighting. And, and by now, like I've done, people have listened to the intro. They already know kind of what this is about. And I want to talk to you about... Um, that specifically i've had a couple people on about different things i've had a buddy i don't know if you remember eric he's he's long gone now he used to go he started a couple months i think after i did um kind of a little stockier bigger guy than me he trained with us at the gym yeah yeah um he uh he had like a a hair on top but shaved on the sides ex-military anyways he, he he came and gone i think he's now moved out i gotta contact him because he's he's training somewhere else for um is his new 
schooling. He was at UTI or whatever. Oh, Long story okay. short, um, I talked to him about his military experience, mm. and he was in the army for I think six years. I got to go back on that podcast, and and I, I always it always fascinates me talking to military guys because you get two sides of that coin. Like you get the de- dedicated guys who almost stay there their whole lives, right? And then you get the guys that come out and well, maybe three points. Then you get the guys that come out and are happy with their experience, and then you get the guys that aren't happy mm. about their experience, right? And for the most part, like I think. Eric seemed like he was happy about his experience, but there were some things that he saw and experienced that he was not happy about, right? Mm. But I think that's with everything. You know, you have a job and there's some things that you'd like or don't like and, you know, it's going to happen. Um, I, but would, I would submit to you that there's that, that perspective in, in anything you do. There's an upside and there's a bad side. And yeah. I think personal perspective can, can affect uh, how you reflect on those things. I think the, the key difference for me, though, in the military was that like you're signed up and it's almost like you're giving your life for those four years. For sure. Yeah. Versus, you're committing service. Yeah. Absolutely. Versus if I don't like something about my job, I'm like, peace out. Right? <laughs> right. Okay. Like if I don't like, if I think something's unethical or something's questionable and it's against my ethics at my job, I could just be right. like, peace out. Yeah. Versus like the military, if you're like on a boat in the middle of nowhere, you're not just going to say peace out. You're, you're stuck yeah. there. Well, you're, you're, you, you sign a contract right. for a period of time and to do that, that you're committed and it's uh, and the, you know, the organization invests a certain amount of time in you. And, True. Um, and so, True. you know, they insert, they invest money and time and training in you. And then you turn around and invest however much time back into them, you know, right. that you've contracted to give, which is crazy because I went into the Marine Corps, um, at 19 years old. Right? Wow. And I think about being 19 years old and I look at the 19 year olds around me and I go, how can you possibly make a decision? That was you. A yeah, commitment that was to four years <laughs> at that age. Right? Like, what do you possibly know that you're committing to? Yeah. So, um, uh, and, and frankly, when I look back on it, for me personally, it was four tremendous, transformative, uh, highly educational years of my life. However, when I sit with my bros and we talk about the, the old days, I sometimes reflect on on some of the less uh, less appetizing elements of mm-hmm. it, and and remember some of the less uh, the less fun <laughs> portions uh, of the job. You know, interesting. So, Why do you think that is? Because well, we want to well. I had a good time, right? And so when I think back on it, I remember the highlights. I remember the good stuff, right? And um, but. I think, and I think everybody who's had military service would rec- would recognize this that there's there's so much um, administrative aspects. There's so much standing around. There's so much um, that when you're at the low ranks of an organization, you have no control. So you spend a lot of time just showing up, waiting. You know this idea. The, the uh, we call it the hurry up and wait. Yes, he right? said exact same thing. Right. So he you said show exact up. Same thing. You could, well, what here's how that works, right? The the company commander says, hey, I need everyone here. We're going to step off at 0600 hours. So that tr- trickles down to the platoon. The platoons The platoons are like, well, hey, we need you here at 0530 because we're going to step off at 06. So everyone be here at 0530 for accountability. Well, that trickles down from the platoon into the uh, individual squads. Well, the squads are like, well, hey, you better show me here at, at <laughs> 05 because we have to step off at 06. I want these guys ducks in a row. And so everybody... Everybody, every leader at each little level puts their buffer into it so they can exercise a certain amount of control of the situation. Right. Next thing you know, you're standing there at 4.30 in the morning waiting for something that's not going to happen until 06. And then inevitably, you don't leave on time anyway. <laughs> so you're there for seven hours waiting. Eric felt like some of that was um, conditioning. Like some of that was getting you prepared for, for following orders and kind of... Well... 
I think so. I, I think a certain amount of it is just command and control, right? We need to move large bodies of, of equipment and personnel. Mm. And how do we do that? We set strict timetables and we exercise on those timetables, right? right? And each layer of, of um, command and control, uh, each layer of leadership has to make, be accountable for their section. Right, so as you break it down, each section's gaining accountability. So hey, show up a little bit early, so I make sure I have my people here. Right, right. And so, because I'm accountable to my boss, and I want to make sure my ducks are in a row. So many variables. Right, yeah. and so so some of it is, um, you know, the military's idea is, um, when it comes to discipline and all that, is is absolutely uh, accountability for your actions and accountability to your to the guy standing next to you, accountability to your leader, and how do you train that? Well, it starts in boot camp with this kind of breaking down of of the uh, the person that you are coming into that organization, right, into whatever branch of service it is. We sort of strip away the civilian um, and, and raise you up in this model of uh, military uh, excellence or military commitment. Right and and thrust you down that pathway, so so that it is an idea. Uh, it is leads to instant response to orders, right? So um, I, I think we will all just generally understand that the military is not really a democratic organization. The, the, boss, <laughs> right. the boss says, right, "Hey, right, this right. is where you're going to be and when you're going to be there." Well, on the battlefield, that's critical because we have to execute maneuvers. We have to get things done uh, right now. There's not time for uh, for a collaborative discussion about the uh, the philosophy that we're you know we're undertaking right here, what's the philosophy of our of this order we're executing? Right, no, right, no, right. we got to act right now. So, or you know, lives are in danger, or we don't execute our mission, or you know, whatever the case may be. But that um, so that piece of it is 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 really really important. That instant response to orders. Well, a certain amount of programming has to take place, right. and um, and then we you know that gets repeated over and over again. Right? So it. The other piece of that, one of my least favorite things in the military was, um, and probably still my least favorite thing in the world is, is uh, like house cleaning, right? So we'd have to <laughs> we'd have to detail the barracks, and so you know it's every little detail. It's, it's scrubbing the corners, making you know making sure there's not a speck of dust or dirt anywhere in that place. You know, polishing the floor so that you could you know see yourself in the floor, that kind of stuff. How many? How big is the barracks? Oh, I don't know. It depends on where you are, right? Okay. Like so. But there's I, multiple bodies in there, right? Like how many yes. people live in so when I was in, So when I was in boot camp, uh, so for example, boot camp, we had 120 to 140 guys in so a building. freaking huge. Big wide open, yeah, big wide open squad bay with rows and rows and rows of racks, double a stacked. Warehouse. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, but then when I was in uh, my training school, we had like four guys per room. Oh, wow. So now you're into like what's you know, more like a, they call it a BEQ, a bachelor enlisted quarters. And then when I was in the, in the fleet Marine Force, then my barracks was, uh, I mean, I had a squad bay at one point, and then another point I had um, a barracks with just two dudes. You know, so me, me and another guy. A lot. Yeah, yeah, so it just depends on the on the base, and depends on what, they, what they're outfitted with, and, and depends on where you are in your level of training, et cetera. But what remains is when you do a field day, which is what they call cleaning up, right? When you, when you do your weekly field day, it's an ordeal where you're spending hours cleaning, and, uh, and then somebody comes in and inspects and all this other stuff, right? So... Um, it's this horrible experience because it's just a grind. Yeah. But the point of it is is to maintain the details. And if you're focused on the detail of what you're doing, you don't miss the big stuff, right? If you if you are able to be aware and mindful of the small details, then the big details the big details will be no problem. Hmm. So um, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Uh, it was Lieutenant Colonel 
Navy SEAL guy did a talk at, uh, I want to say it was Texas Tech. I could be messing it all, I'm messing it all up. But he talked about, he gave a talk called, um, uh, it's called Making Your Bed or something like that. Whatever. Anyways, go look it up. Google it. And he talked, the very first thing he talks Is about. Is it Jocko? Is it Jocko? No, it's not Jocko. It's a. Uh, He's a, like a lieutenant commander or something like that, Navy lieutenant commander, SEAL, 30-year guy, one of those guys. And he talks about making your bed. This is the first thing you do every day is you get up and you make your bed. And his talk goes on and on about some other things. But his point in that is the small details matter. You know, if you make your bed right, then you've accomplished one thing for the day. And it's that's a step in the right direction. And it's... Uh, the detail that goes into that, the 40, folding your corners at 45 degree angles, flipping the top down and making it, you know, like a, you know, a four inch uh, seam on the. Are you guys busting out rulers and, and how, how? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Okay. And they're checking them, right? Uh huh. Yeah, and even we'd even have our uh, our locker would get inspected, right? So you have all your uniforms hanging in your locker, and you had them lined up just so you space the hangers, you know, so far apart. I don't remember all the wow, I don't really? remember all the dimensions or any of that nonsense, but I do remember having to fold my underwear into little four by four squares, which is ridiculous. I bought like extra small underwear just to make it happen <laughs> in my in my inspection locker, um, and the idea was mission readiness, right? If at any given point they say we're deploying, you go to your locker, you dump right, the whole thing yeah. into a sea bag, and off you go, right? It's ready to go, um, and so. Those, those elements of, uh, of attention to detail are, are so important to mission preparedness. They, it's, a, it's, hard to, it's a hard lesson to learn, but once you get there, you, you begin to recognize the, the, uh, the importance of it, the necessity of it, the, the um, applicability of it, and even showing up to, found, to formations, you know, to roll, hey, we're going to go on a deployment. Hey, be here at 4.30 in the morning. You're like, oh, my, I know I'm going to be there for five hours because we're actually not going to roll out until 06 or whatever the timetable is. But you recognize that there's layers of, of control in there to help make this happen properly. And those are all, you know, necessary evils, if you will, in that whole in that whole evolution. I can see that. I can see that, and I can see how you're, you're taking on people from different walks of life when you're, you know, the military. And so you got to retrain people to be more disciplined. Especially now, mm-hmm. I feel people are a little less disciplined than than we probably should be mm-hmm. here in America, at least. Like, it, right. I, I feel like discipline isn't like one of the virtues that just everybody has. It's, I think it's right. quite the opposite now. And I think having to take on all of those walks of lives and, and trying to retrain them to be disciplined enough to check for four inches and, and 45 degree angles and hanger. I mean, that's, that's a big walk. That's a big death step from where you're probably a normal American is living now mm-hmm. and now doing that. It's a huge step. Right. So there's a lot of, I'm sure discipline and training and whatever whatever um well so so my question is that i you know i think people need to ask themselves when they come out of the military is why is that relevant and how do you carry it over into your civilian life you know does it apply in your daily life yeah i would think so i mean i would think so but yeah but i think so how does how does discipline manifest itself in your life that type of discipline i don't think I mean, I'd be curious to see how many guys from the military just kind of just let go after they're all out. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And how many of them stay focused and disciplined? I bet you guys are like Navy SEAL guys probably stay very disciplined for mm-hmm. the most part because those guys are just living discipline at this point mm-hmm. um, if you made it that far. Because Eric talked about it. He, he tried out a couple times mm-hmm. for the um, 
whatever the, the test is called, whatever the test is called. Anyways, he talked about it. He talked. He tried it a couple times. Was he in the navy? He was in the navy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He was in the navy. Um, his biggest thing was like the swimming portion of it. Yeah. yeah. Gotta be able to swim. <laughs> he well, apparently, like it's a it's a you have to have excellent technique to be able to do some of the stuff that they do because it, yeah. you have to have the techniques that way you're not expending more energy than you need yeah. during whatever you're doing. That makes sense. Yeah. So he like had a, he talked about getting a guy to help him learn how to do the strokes properly and how to, yeah. you know what I mean? It's a lot of work. Yeah. Well, sw- so, swimming in particular is about efficiency yeah. in the water. You can't, you cannot muscle your way through the water. It just doesn't work. Yeah. I've tried. <laughs> yeah it's it's an interesting one because it's almost like dancing or jujitsu like yeah. you have to know how to move and, and the way you transition from this to that is, is a big deal yeah yeah you know otherwise you're gonna look like a just sl- flopping around water going everywhere yeah you're trying to fight your way through the water the, the uh back in the day i uh i haven't raced in a long time but i used to race triathlons and when i first started racing triathlons i didn't really know how to swim i mean i grew up swimming as a kid but I didn't know how to swim. And I, you, know, you see my expression on my face. I met, you know, raised eyebrows, like how to swim uh, competitively, mm-hmm. right? And, and actually move quickly through the water. Because I could get from side to side, but I was super inefficient and super yeah. clunky. Um, and there's a whole lot of technique to learning how to streamline yourself in the water and be smooth and expend as little energy as possible. And yeah, it's a whole... The whole, uh, I mean, it's like anything. It's it's like it's like any sport. There's technique to it that you need right. to learn how to do to be efficient and to be effective and efficient, and smooth. Yeah, there's there's a lot to that. Yeah. Um, what did you do in the military, by the way? I never asked. You. Uh, I was an 1811, which is a tanker. Um, what does that mean? I was in a tank. Oh, okay. <laughs> Liter- a literal tanker. How much room is in those things? Uh, how much room? Yeah, yeah. not no, not a lot. Because I've seen lot. one, being, but it's just like, what, what is, how much room is in that thing? So, so I started in uh, what's called the M60, uh, the M60 Rise Passive Tank, which is a, a Korea-era, Vietnam-era old dinosaur. <laughs> and then, uh, so I was in from 90 to 94, and we okay. transitioned at that time. Um, right after I got trained on the M60, we transitioned into what... The kind of the modern battle tank, which is the M1 Abrams that everyone knows. So when you see on the battlefields today, okay. um, it's kind of sleek lines, uh, super fast, high speed. And I remember the very first time I poked my head in a tank, I'm like, there is no way I'm going to learn how to do this. There's so many buttons and switches and lights. Oh, and, that's hilarious. And I'm like, there's no way. I don't think I've ever seen a cockpit of those things. It's pretty cool. So How many people go in there? In our, Three? In uh, four. There's a crew of four. four. Okay. So um, the M60 and the M1 Abrams is very similar in the sense that you have a, a driver who's in the bottom portion of the tank down in the hole, we okay. call it. And then in the uh, turret, you've got um, a loader, which is the guy who physically loads the main cannon and, um, and a host of other things. And then the gunner who sits, um, sits in a, a little chair next to the cannon and he's got a series of controls in front of him with a scope and all this other stuff. And then the tank commander... Uh, is standing in the, you'll see what's called a cupola, which is like the little turret on top of the main turret of the tank. It's like a smaller oh, okay. turret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's protected too, right? It's got a, uh-huh, and it's got a machine gun in it. Okay. So, um, 
Uh, so you got four guys, four folks. How much ammo can you? Because ha- I just thought about that. You have Ooh. to carry that ammo with you. Yeah. So there's because you're physically hull, loading it. Yeah. The the turret and the hull of the tank have compartments for the ammunition. And I got to tell you, I have. It's been twenty something years since I've been out. I have no recollection okay. of how much. I'm just curious. How big was a lot? I want to say. 35, 40 rounds, something like that. Quite a few of the main gun rounds. How big are they? They're pretty big. They're probably three and a half feet long. Holy and um, so here's some funny, a funny little story wow. about those. The M60s casings were steel. And when you'd shoot a round off, it was a 105 millimeter main gun, which is you know about that big a round. Yeah. And like a uh, coffee cup, like a giant coffee cup. Yeah. Well, yeah. A little bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Make a giant C with your hands about that big round. <laughs> so the, uh, you would load those rounds in, you fire it, and then this giant shell casing, picture just like a bullet casing, yeah. but a huge one that's like two and a half feet long, would spit out and into the turret. In the cabin? Yeah, into the turret. So it's bouncing around inside the turret, and they're hot because they just fired yeah, yeah, yeah. a round out. So usually the, the, the loader would just stomp it down and, you know, push it down to the floor and hold it there. And then, you know, if we're doing an exercise or if you're in combat or whatever, your, your tank would load up with these things. Yeah. And then at some point you'd have to offload them. And so that was whatever. That's what it, it is what it was. Right. Well, when we got into the, uh, M1 Abrams, the casings of the M1 Abrams is a little bit different. It was made of like a cardboard and it had a butt plate on it, which was metal and had a, had the ignition, um, what'd you call that? The firing pin mechanism in it. So you'd load this round into the chamber and the only thing that would, it would, it would ignite, send the round down range and the casing would get disintegrated oh, that's um, or cool. consumed. And the that's only thing cool. that would come out was this like five, you know, it's eight inch by three inch butt plate would pop out and hit the floor. Um, so you could go significantly longer without having to worry about casings piling up on the floor. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So kind of a neat little uh, I'm going to go home and Google, Google tank stuff when we get done with this. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The other thing about the M1 Abram, which is kind of neat, is uh, you have your main gun, then you have a coaxially or, or side-by-side mounted M60, mm-hmm. um, and then there's a an M60 on the top of the turret for the loader to use, and then the tank commander had a 50 cal. Wow. So I don't remember how many gun, how many guns, how many ammo rounds were coaxially mounted in the M60, but it was a lot. I want to say around a thousand. I'm surprised they didn't design them just like guns to discharge the cartridge outside of the tank. Oh right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I see what you're saying, but yeah. I'm surprised there isn't like a little thing that pops up on the side of the the turret thing right. and just boom, shoots yeah. out the. Well, you wouldn't be able to load it the way it's the way the. Because I've seen it comes down, right? You just kind of drop it, drop it in. Yeah. So the the, the breech of the canyon sits uh-huh. inside the turret, and you drop the breech down, and you slide this round in, and then the breech comes up. So you can load rounds as fast as the loader can move. As soon as that round is ejected, the cartridge is ejected, he can immediately load another round. So if you had some kind of mechanical mechanism that would eject it for you or whatever, it would slow your ability to operate. Gotcha. But, I mean, how often are you shooting those things when you're out? Like, how quickly can you shoot those things off? Super fast. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, that so that's, so that's the thing. Like, if, if the guy's, he puts a round in, you acquire the target, he's already grabbing another round while you're firing that round. So it's, it happens pretty quickly. How I, loud I, is that thing? It's, it's loud. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're wearing, when you're doing a gunnery range, you're wearing, or when you're ear firing them off, you're wearing ear protection plus a communication headset, helmet, headset combination type thing. Mm. So you've got some protection on, but. Interesting. I don't know. I'm pretty sure I have some hearing deficits, but. <laughs> yeah, man. I, <laughs> At I, least I when my wife's it. around. 
<laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. That's crazy. I didn't know that about you. That's crazy. Yeah. So I guess we should get on to the, the topic of the podcast because I, I, so <laughs> you can so, cut all this out if you want to. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just, I'm keeping it in. So like one of the reasons why I didn't prepare a lot of questions or very many at all. Because I, I, I'm a chatterbox? No, because I think one time you and I spoke on the phone about some random, I can't even remember. I think it was like fitness stuff. And it was like we were talking for an hour. And I'm like, yeah. dude, it's going to be no issue filling up time <laughs> talking about this. So we'll be fine. Uh-huh. Um, so well, so let's go back. Let's go back. Well, okay, you had a question in your head. No, go no, ahead. no. So well, let's let's transition. So you left the military and then decided to just become a firefighter. No, I I farted around for a couple of years, uh, working some different jobs. I uh, when I first got out, I did construction for a little bit, and then I uh, got a job working for REI, which one of my That's favorite a, uh, recreational equipment incorporated. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's an outdoor store. So selling backpacks and camping equipment and all that kind of stuff. It's amazing company to work for. Really? Yeah, great company to work for and uh, fun job. You know, you're working with people who are prepping for trips and going on going fun places. So, so they're having fun there. Yeah, they're enjoying it. Yeah, it's a yeah. hobby. Yeah, they're coming there to buy toys. So it's fun. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. So we, uh, I, I decided. I'm like, well, I got to be professional. I got to, I got to. If I want to be uh, successful in this world, I got to put a shirt and tie on, and, <laughs> and I better be. You know, if I, gotta, I got to go be business guy, whatever that looks like, right? I was all this while I was going to school, and uh, which is a whole separate topic. I'll get into in a second if you want me to. But the, uh, um, so I took a job working for a bank, and uh, it was the worst. Absolutely hated it, um, and um, it just what it was for me was a kind of an awakening, recognizing that I there's some things that I wanted to do, um, and and the values that I had that I wanted out of my work life, whatever that was going to be, those weren't being met working for a bank. Right, I wanted to be able to to help people. Can you do that in a bank? Sure. Um, however, helping people with uh, financial accounts just was so unrewarding to me. Yeah, it just yeah. didn't have any value to me personally. Um, there's people who are all about helping people with finances, and that's fantastic that we need those people. It did not work for me, not sustainable. And every day I was like ready to quit, and my poor <laughs> wife was was pregnant, and she's like, please don't quit. Like, we need the insurance. You know, you get yeah, the yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was horrible. So the uh, anyway, thank heavens for my wife. She's, she's a blessing in my life. But the... Uh, so all this while I'm going to school, working at the bank, I, uh, an old friend of mine got hired on by a fire department, and I called her up and I said, hey, tell me about this. This is like a real job. You can do this for a living? And she's like, absolutely. And she kind of rolls off kind of some of the benefits to me and tells me a little bit about the job. And I'm like, okay, so that sounds pretty exciting. And uh, I call up an old friend of mine whose father was an L.A. City fireman. And um, I said, hey, Ken, um, you know, you work for L.A. City Fire. That was a sound like a good career for you and your family tell me about that and he's like do you want to be a firefighter and I said <laughs> I said I'm thinking about it and he goes oh Rain you'd be a great fireman and uh and I'm like why didn't you tell me about this sooner you right here I am you know I don't know four years out of the Marine Corps I'm, like, How old are you? I'm, I'm just now finding out about this how old are you at this uh, point? 27 27 okay so I, le- I leaned in um I went on a couple ride alongs and I'm like yeah this is exactly what I want to do uh for a whole host of reasons. I already had my EMT certification, uh, which is one of the emergency medical technician. One of those things you have to do to become a firefighter. And uh, I was doing it for search and rescue, a whole separate story. Um, and uh, once I realized that, that you could you could work with your hands, have a very physical job, be outdoors a lot. And on top of that, the, the work that you do brings value to people every day. I was in. I was like, that, that was hook, line, and sinker for me. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, I started, got, jumped into the testing process, tested with a bunch of, with a handful of different departments and then landed a job. So what does that mean? What is the testing process? Well, so generally speaking, um, you have a, a written examination and then you have um, a physical agility or physical abilities test and then you'll have a series of interviews. Um, and depending on the size of the organization or whatever, um, one interview, two interviews, sometimes three interviews, depending. Um, and... Uh, and that's it. So physically, I was at the time I was running triathlons and was pretty super fit, and that the physical piece of it wasn't really an issue. Um, but there was a lot of preparation I needed to do for the um, for the interview portion of it, uh, because going in and speaking about yourself and telling them how you're so amazing and how you're going to be a, the best candidate for the I job had an is interview like that once. I hated it. I yeah. hated that. Those are challenges. It's challenging. Yeah. And you want to be able to speak about the job and say, hey, here's what I understand about the job, and here's why my the physical traits that I the, the character traits that I bring to the job are valuable and will be helpful blah 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 so those are it is challenging yeah so what what's the uh, written test like what are they testing you over oh geez so I can't imagine it's, it's like an SAT no it's got there's some general aptitude stuff in there like they'll they'll provide like some reading comprehension sections some fundamental math sections um, and then there's uh, depending on the organization that you test with so like um, the uh, the city that I work for, the TED, they hand out a packet, and that packet uh, has a, you know, about seventy five percent of the content that's going to be on the test is in the packet, oh, and okay. it's and it's stuff about the fire department, it's stuff about the nature of firefighting and the way we do business in our city, um, all that information's in there. So that kind of gives you a leap, uh, you know, a jump start toward that process if you study that packet, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all right there. Um, so they're studying, or sorry, they're assessing whether or not you're. You know, good at reading comprehension, re-prepping, right, blah right, blah, right, and et cetera, right, 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 and then yeah. regurgitating. The, the written test is really um, just a gateway, right? Just a just an invitation. Just you pass that, you get an invitation to the dance to take the next phase. Um, in today's day and age, back then, each fire department used to hold their own physical abilities test, and um, they'd host it. You go out there, and the local firefighters from that agency would be there running you through this testing process. And nowadays, there's like a certificate process. You go, you go to an agency, or you go to the community college. You take a uh, the, the, called the CPAT, the Candidate Physical Abilities Test. It's all standardized. Uh, it's nationwide standardized testing. You get your certificate saying you passed it, and then you're good for six months or a year or something like that. And uh, um, and then, uh, and then you go on to the, once you get through all that, that's kind of a pass fail, the, the physical abilities test. And, um, the, um, that test itself is, is 11 minutes, you have 11 minutes to pass it. And there's this, and I don't even, honestly, I don't remember all the events, but there's a series of events that are firefighter related. You like, for example, you raise a ladder up against the wall, then you run the ladder up. Um, you extend the ladder, then you go over and you pick up some tools, you run them down the thing, you set them on a shelf, you take them off the shelf, you bring them back, you know, those kind of things. Pull a hose, extend a hose line around a barrel, stuff like that. So, so on a 1 of 10, how difficult is that 11-minute test? They, it, well, for, for fear of sounding like a like an egomaniac, <laughs> uh, I felt it to be very, very easy. Okay. I know there are some people who struggle with it. Um, because it's unusual, they're not familiar with the skills. If you train the skill set, um, and there are places you can go and learn how to do that stuff, like learn to be familiar with the equipment, um, and then if your physical fitness is um, reasonable, it's not that hard of a test. Okay. Um, but it's so. only one step, right? It's one step of, yes, of, of many in order for you to get right. 
um, this thing that you're looking for. Right. Um, so I guess before I go further into the, well, no, keep going, keep going. So then you did all the tests and then you talked to your friends. Um, you talked to your friends, you did the testing. Yeah. So I finally, I got hired on with, uh, with an agency and, um, started my career. Was this the place? It took me about six months and that's, I hesitate to say that because a lot of folks spend years trying to get on that the job. My, that was my next question. Yeah, I was yeah. very, uh, my timing was good. I was lucky. I was blessed. I came, I brought the juice at the right time at the right place and I got on the job. Because there's only so many positions per city, right? Right. Whenever, yeah, so every agency does their testing at different times whenever they have a hiring need, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, or if there's an academy class coming up, so like in the in the Greater Phoenix area, we have a regional training academy, and uh, two of them, Glendale has a regional training academy, and so does the city of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So the west side of town will host a class, and and the west side cities will do a test, and then push through a class of, of recruits okay. with seven or eight different cities participating. How that's many, how that's how, how Phoenix students? does the same thing. So same idea, same principles. I'm not couldn't tell you all the cities I participate, but right, right, right. these uh, these other cities all participate in this regional training. Um, so the cities hire um, as they have a need, and then when there's a class available, they'll do a hiring as well. So that's kind of there's a little bit of timing that goes into, you know, the process. Yeah, I heard of that. I've heard friends who I think were considering doing it, but I, I heard it was challenging getting a job because there isn't that many positions. It's super competitive. Yeah. Well, and you get like, so when uh, City of Phoenix hosts a test, for example, they'll get a couple thousand people show up wow. to take the test. So it's a big, it's a big ordeal, and you walk into that room and you're like. Oh, there's a lot of folks here. So how many positions would you say like they're opening so, for? Every, every a city this a city the size of Phoenix might hire uh, fifty to hundred a year. Depending, okay. it depends, right, on the cycle. Like there's been times when the city of Phoenix is in a hiring freeze, not hiring anybody. Um, you know, and then there's times when uh, you know smaller agencies will put through two or three guys. You know, in a year. And they just, you know, their, their agencies are much, much smaller, so they don't have the amount of attrition. Um, but Phoenix is so much bigger, and they have more attrition. So it's just a rel- numbers game in that regard. Interesting. So how do you, I mean, how do you, if you've got a 1,000 applicants, what do you do to stand out at that point? If everybody's so passing the same a, written that is the, physical That instance. is the million-dollar question, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so first of all, the written, your written score is your invitation to the dance, right? So okay. you've got to do super good on your written. The, the better you do on your written, the, the greater chances you have of getting an interview. And it's competitive, so you got to get in the high 90s um, to, to get yourself an interview. The physical abilities, like I said, in today's day fail. and age, pass or fail. Yeah. You take a certificate somewhere, go do that. But So pr- go, go work out. <laughs> go, prepare, go prepare yourself. <laughs> um, and then uh, the interview piece, this is, where, um, this is where you make your money, right? So you have to... Uh, do a deep dive on who you are. And this is going to sound really harsh, but um, but I like to ask guys, you know, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Like, what, what gives you the, the right to go down this pathway of taking this test? And I don't mean that to sound like... Uh, are, you, are you phrasing it to, that way? No, on purpose. Oh. Because I want, I want guys <laughs> to say, well, I truly, you know, I, I am a quality candidate for this position, and here's why. Now, so who, who do you think you are? Why do you think you bring anything to the table? If you don't know the answer to that question, you're not going to be successful because it's so um, it's so competitive. The people that are going in there have thought about this for years and years and years and years. They've thought about what it means to be a firefighter and what it means to be um, the person given the opportunity to serve in that capacity. So I feel like the um, that that knowledge of who you are 
and why, what's your motivation for doing this is really, really important. Um, now, you could back that up a step and you think, well, okay, well, this job is, will, um, it's a huge rate of, of uh, cancer for guys who go into this job. There's, really? There's, mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the products of combustion are incredibly carcinogenic and, um, and uh, we have lots of exposure you know, to that stuff over the course of years. So a lot of guys retire off the job after 25 so many or, or so years and, you know, live five or 10 years after that and then they expire. Um, oh, wow. And I, I'm generalizing, but, right, that, right, right. but it's a common occurrence, you know, and, and it's becoming more common over the years. So... So, um, we can talk more about that, but the, the reality is that understanding the, the, um, deleterious effects that the job can have on you is important going into it because you're, you're saying, um, not only is there issues of like carcinogens, but there's issues with PTSD or PTS where you are seeing really savage injuries and, and people who are, uh, torn to shreds in very violent and, and, um, un- unnatural ways. And that can leave marks in your mind, yeah. you know, indelible, yeah. indelible marks. So you take all that and you say, well, why am I doing this? Why would I do that to myself? Why would I, why would I um, uh, ask anybody to put themselves in harm's way like that? Not to mention the fact that when you go into a burning building, there's the potential that you could get killed in the building, you know, by fire or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or in today's day and age, we're starting to get much, much more issues with violent incidents where people are shooting at firefighters and, and first responders in general. Really? Yeah. Uh, there was a, not too long ago, there was a firefighter that was stabbed in Seattle. And then there was a, I don't remember where this took place, but just recently there was a, a guy still lit a building on fire, called for fire. And when they, as they were rolling up, he started shooting at them with a high power rifle, so sharpshooting them. Wow. So, so there's a lot of, there's threats in this job, right? And of yeah. course, you know, our, our organizational leaders are, are doing everything they can to get ahead of those threats and find ways to mitigate them. But when you are coming into this field of endeavor, you have to ask yourself, why, why would I do that? And so to me, I look into this is where I'm, uh, when I reflect on it, I think the purpose of our doing this is service. And, um, we, the, this is a, uh, uh, service industry and you know I told you before like I I wanted to be able to find ways to help people right and right. you know we this may sound to me it sounds a little bit uh, too common because we talk about it a lot in the fire service but this idea that we are um, we are called when people are having the worst day of their lives so we show up when they're having heart attacks when their kids are sick when they're when their house is on fire like these are bad moments and we have an opportunity to come in and um, and affect change on what's taking place in these people's lives. And to me, that's incredibly valuable mm. um, way to spend my time. You know, if I'm going to have a career and uh, I'm going to make a living and support my family, it, can I do that in a way that benefits the community around me? Um, if I if that's an option to me, then yeah, I'm in. You know, that's what I want to do. So, so that's what I ask guys: is if is that what you're interested in? Because the, there's a tremendous amount of personal sacrifice that goes along with that. So I guess that brings up my next question. Before you mentioned you're working at the bank uh-huh. and your wife is pregnant. Hmm. How is she taking the news that you considering being a that firefighter? Quit. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not just the quitting the bank, but more yeah. so now you're taking on a job that there's so, risk, so big we, risk. We got married when I was, while I was in the Marine Corps. Okay. So I think there was a certain amount of, um, and then recreationally I was a rock climber and I run triathlons. I'm always doing this stuff that was pushing, pushing the envelope of, normal I guess or pushing the envelope of physical health so I think she was kind of uh, kind of used to that 
and and was okay with it you know mm. um you know i'm on the uh arizona task force and so we deployed for uh hurricane irma and and um i just forgot the name of the other hurricane the florida and houston yeah and um you know i'm like hey are you cool with me going on deployment she's like well yeah like I expect you to do these things. So mm. she's kind of gotten used to the idea. And funny, funny little anecdote. Um, we had a friend whose husband passed pretty early and I was like, you know, honey, that's horrible. What, you know, or do you worry about me dying? And she goes, no, no, I don't worry about you dying in a fire or anything like that. She goes, that's not going to be my trial in life. I'm like, Oh, what's going to be your trial? She goes, my trial is I'm going to have to be married to you for 65 years. <laughs> Uh, so so is she used to the idea yeah she's okay with it (laughs) yeah what percentage of firefighters would you say are are married with kids oh that's a good number i don't know the numbers um it's a high percentage and i but i do know that the divorce rate's pretty high you know really public safety in general the the divorce rate's really high and um can you know because of stress because of Mm -hmm. time away you know like so for example i work a a 24-hour on and 48 hours off and I'm almost okay. in my 20th year. I'm just about hitting 20 here next month. And, you know, 40, you know, being gone for 24 hours is a long time when there's stressful things happening at home. Yeah. And so that can corrode a marriage, you know, and if, if it's not tended to, you really have to pay, pay attention to your, to your family and make sure you're deliberately engaging them in, mm-hmm. in positive ways. You know, and a lot of times too, you know, there's things that you bring home with you that are stressful and, you know, they, they cause you to behave poorly because you don't know how to manage your own stress so we as you know public servants have to figure out ways to manage that and be uh, not bring it home and not lay it on our family and try to you know try to be uh have a healthy home lifestyle it's it's challenging it's a challenge i I can imagine i thought okay that's at least i thought you did more days on so that's kind of good you get a little little reprieve here and there so here's so it works differently in different fire departments so my fire department does 24 hours on and then 48 hours off. And that just repeats ad nauseum, right? Now I have vacation days and things like that, so I can take stretches of time off, which I do frequently. Um, and then there's other agencies where they'll do a 4896, um, so 48 hours of work and then 96 hours off. Okay. And they just repeat that. So that's 48 hours away from home. I don't know if I like that idea personally. Um, and then there's some cities where they do uh, a three-four schedule, one on, one off, one on, one off, and then four off. Mm-hmm. So it all ends up being about the same amount of hours at the end of the month, yeah, yeah. but it's just various ways of kind of spreading it out, allocating it. Yeah. yeah. So what's it like being at the firehouse for like 24 hours? It's awesome. Is it? Yeah, I think, hilarious. I think, you know what? I do think about that. Cause I do wonder like as a guy, I think it's, it's not to sound harsh ladies, but it is nice to kind of get some, some guy time. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it also gives your wife, a little bit of a, a break well, from you. <laughs> right. So I, uh, not too long ago, I took a staff job and uh-huh. working a 40 hour work week. And so it's home every night. And my wife's like, at what point are you going to go away so I can have the bed to myself for a night? Yeah. It's, a, it's funny. Cause after so many years, it becomes the habit. Like we have this big king size bed and she wants the whole thing to herself. That's hilarious. Um, Plus I'm sure it's like peace and quiet too. You know, it's, well, it's, it's, you get your opportunity to have your own downtime, mm-hmm. right? Which I think, you know, not to go on a tangent, but we don't get enough alone time in this life. Yeah. You know, um, 
you know, particularly when you're married, you go to work, you come home and it's, your family's with you and you're up until bedtime. And the only time you get to be alone is when you go to sleep. So for her, it's a night where she can watch what she wants on TV or she can read a book or she can go for a hike and do and have her own personal time. Right. Now, granted, my kids are a little bit older. So at this point in our lives, it's a little bit different. But, you know, when the kids were little, that alone time was not so hard. Right, 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 right. She was with young kids. That was a challenge. That takes a patient woman, though, like to know that you're going to be gone for X amount of time Mm -hmm. and she's got to take care of the kids. Yeah. Like 100%. Well, but here's the good thing is when we we reciprocated. So when the kids were young, um, I would come home from work and she would leave for the day or go shopping or go be with her girlfriends or um, she went to graduate school when my kids were like three and four years old. Oh, wow. So she's like, okay, I need some time for my own self. And um, she took it. And it was, you know, it was something we talked about and agreed on and worked through together. And uh, it's an important part of that reciprocation, Mm -hmm. right? Taking care of each other. Yeah. But you you talked about the firehouse. And so let me go back to that. Oh, yeah, yeah. The the thing about the firehouse, and we talked about this before we started recording, which I think is is really, really important, is the camaraderie. Mm -hmm. Um, And that camaraderie is, is critical to mission success. Um, because of the element of trust and the element of, of c- team capacity and the interoperability of all the team members. Mm-hmm. So in order for us to be effective, I need to know what, you know, I need to know what Jonathan's going to do on, if we get X, Y, Z call, I need to know how he's going to behave. And I only get that by putting time in and training and it's running no calls yeah. mm-hmm, and getting to know who you are and what you're capable of. Well, part of that is time in at the firehouse, right? If we're going to play cards or we're going to go work out in the gym or we're going to whatever, I'm going to see who you are, what your discipline's like, what your behaviors are like. I'm going to hear the music you like to listen to. I'm going to get to know, I'm going to hear you talk crap about the president or whatever, right? Like right, all right, these right. different things. I'm going to know who you are. And, um, and as a, as a fire company, um, our, our ability to function is predicated upon that capacity to inter- interact with each other effectively. So that really is, a, you know, the time in the firehouse is important. And it's so much, it's a lot of fun. You know, we cook together, we clean together, we, you know, work on the truck together. It seems, it seems like when the team is very functional and very close, like it's hard for guys to want to leave that. Like, mm-hmm. for example, like the heavyweight champion of the UFC right now is still a full-time firefighter. Yeah, what's that guy's name? Uh, Stipe Miocic, I believe it's pronounced. Mm. Um, as, I mean, he, he might still or might not still be the champion, but <clears throat> what I'm saying is, like, he never let that go. Like, he, yeah. he's making a lot of money as a, right. as a UFC fighter, but yet he doesn't want to. Like, he, he yeah. committed himself to be a firefighter, and he loves his job, and he right. loves his team, and he still does it, and he still cleans bathrooms, and he yeah. still does all that stuff that he's got to do as a firefighter. Yeah. Um, the first couple of days in the firehouse, was it like a big kid in a toy store? Or you like run around, you well, have the giant pole thing you're swinging <laughs> at? Slide the pole and yeah, all that. When you're, you know, when you're a brand new firefighter, um, you know, you, they call them a booter or probie or FNG, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> you're just the, you're just the, you know, you're the gopher. You, you, your job is to just be uh, somewhat subservient and to defer to all the, the big dogs in the hot, in the barn. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you're earning your way into the, into the fold. Mm. So you're not cooking, you're not anything. You're just there to ch- be the sous chef, right? So, you know, Johnny on the spot, hey, we need this onion, chop. I'm chopping it, right? You know, <laughs> hey, we need this floor swept, I'm sweeping it. If yeah. somebody else is working, you're there working beside them. Um, part of that is learning the craft, right? Learning what needs to be done around the firehouse. And the other part of that is build, earning your way into the, into the house. Um, earning your way into the into the community, into mm-hmm. the the assimilation process, into that group. So that's important. That's a really important part. It's a lot of fun. Um, you know, back in the when I first got on the job, um, 
my crew uh, decided to haze me. And uh, <laughs> we don't do that anymore. It's uh, not okay. But <laughs> but I will tell you this. If they're not giving you a hard time, if they're not talking crap to you, it's because they don't like you. Yeah, right? it's, part of, it's part of the gig. Yeah. I think it's guys. Sometimes it's part of the gig. Yeah. <clears throat> like that's how yeah. sometimes we, we mess around. They're going to give you a hard yeah. time because they, they want you to be successful, but they want to push you a little bit and see how you respond. And mm-hmm. that's that's a part of earning your way in. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's fun. So what happened? How'd you get hazed? Oh, back in the day. So, um, well, first of all, the whole crew jumped me and wrestled me down to the ground. <laughs> and then I got, uh, I think the, the move that sent me, uh, that locked me up was a f- double fish hook on my on my mouth, you know what that is? Yeah, yeah, thumbs yeah. In the yeah. Double fish hook, and then I had mayonnaise, mustard, ketchup, pretty much all the condiments crammed into all my nether regions, and every orifice, my ears, my butt crack, the whole nine yards. It sounds completely repulsive and juvenile, but um, but I was never, I've never been tighter with a group of guys. Were you <laughs> were you uh, were you pissed off at this point, or were you no, like this is no, part of the game? I'm or? like this is the game, and they're gotcha. they're just giving me a hard time and. I had mayonnaise coming out of my ears for like four or five days. Ugh. Yeah, that was disgusting. <laughs> like, I hope you guys didn't do any permanent damage, but that's um, hilarious. So, what? So, what you know. is there to do at the firehouse? Well, so like a, well, it's just like anybody's home, right? You've got, you've got uh, TV and video games, and you've got you know recliners and newspaper and you know all that kind of stuff, movies, and so. You know, when there's not giant kitchen, of course, that's the cornerstone of any good firehouse yeah, is a good yeah. kitchen. So the, the way the day is structured, you know, it's, you know, it comes in, it's all business. So when you get to work, you're checking off your truck, you're checking off your equipment, you're making sure that you're prepared for whatever uh, emergency might come in at any moment, right? So you get all your stuff together and then you're usually, um, you go off and you do some training, um, whether it be like organizational training or you train as an engine company, just, just the, the unit that's there. You go and work on some type of skill, build whatever, and then usually there's some type of uh, PT or exercise, right? So guys will go and play basketball. Some guys will go and lift weights or do a combination of that. Meantime, they'll go grocery shopping at some point. And then all the while, they're running calls in between all this stuff. So I was going to say, so if you're grocery shopping, is all you guys together grocery shopping? Yep. And if you can still get a call, so, like so mid-eggs, mid, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> you having the eggs and you get a call? Yep. So here's an example. So some, some companies will have like a single engine company, right? So it's all on them to do all this different stuff. So they'll go shopping and they're halfway through the grocery shopping and they get called to an emergency. They literally take the cart push it to the side or a lot of times they'll run it up to a store clerk depending on how full the cart is and right, say hey right, do you right. mind throwing this in the fridge they'll throw it in the fridge and then they take off with the call and they'll come back for it later just the way it goes um, sometimes if it, you get calls strung together and you never make it back for your groceries you end up eating out you know sometimes that happens and it's just the that's just the way the, the day goes right um, a lot of times you'll have companies stations where you have multiple companies and uh, one company will be in charge of chow for that day and so they'll go to the grocery store and the other company will try to catch calls for them, keep them out of the, keep them in the grocery store if they can, mm. you know, stuff like that. So they try to work together to, to cover each other's calls and to make sure that they can get back and cook. And, you know, if the one company's in the station and they're cooking, the other company's just sitting there waiting on chow and the company that's cooking gets a call, the other truck will take the call for them mm. if they can, you know, if they're, if they're capable, they meet the requirements for the call, they'll take it and interesting go cover so there's that teamwork and you know uh, trying to make things happen on the firehouse but you know and then in the evenings guys will watch movies or you know whatever you know you're we always joke around we say we're just a bunch of coiled you know coiled springs waiting for something to happen yeah, yeah. and that's you know there's you know you guys get very good at learning how to relax in that environment um 
because you just don't know when it's going to happen. So you just try, you try to go about your business. You get the things done you need to get done, and, and you get interrupted all the time. I can't tell you how many plates of food I've stepped away from, and I'm like, well, I'm freaking hungry. <laughs> <laughs> but i got to walk away from a full plate of food. Interesting. It's kind of a drag. So are, are the switches between shifts, I mean, are you guys dropping three guys, three guys come in, three guys come out, and there's two guys left over, or is it like a full swap where everybody... No, it's a full swap. So you'll have, yeah, so... Um, so in the morning, um, you know, we, we switch at zero eight. Usually guys show up at like seven thirty and start switching. And then it's usually position for position. So in in my neck of the woods, we, you know, if I'm here for Bob, I'll go in and, hey, Bob, I'm here for you, brother. Take off. And he'll leave. So there's a, usually a point in time when the crew's kind of intermingled. Okay. And then um, for a brief period, depending on how guys, you know, when they arrive, et cetera, there are some organizations where they do a lineup and when B shift shows up, they line up with the A shift and they face to face and communicate what the day looked like and then they switch. Okay. Um, so, I see that being beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's how they do it in LA County. I believe it's much more structured, way more mm-hmm. paramilitary. You know, it sounds like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah. I can see how that would be useful, especially if you're taking over for a guy who did this job that you're going to be doing for the next 24 yes. hours or whatever. Yeah. Give me an equipment and a status on the equipment. What do I need to know? Is, is there anything broken? Is there anything out of service? You know, it's important to have that communication. Um, you know, my agency, we're a little bit more, a uh, little bit more uh, loose with that, you know, but I'll like, so I'm saying I'm your replacement for the day. I'll show up and I'll be, Hey, Jonathan, what's going on? Oh, nothing, man. Here's, here's what's happened today. We did this. We did that. We ran this call, you know, uh, we lost this tool or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you give me a little report instead of doing a very formal face to face, we just do it one-on-one. So, so I'm assuming, cause I can't imagine you guys grocery shop every single day. If you're only doing 24 hours on every day. Every day, So really? we just shop for those meals because the guys come in the next shift or they're going to do their own thing. So they don't like, you just don't have food left in the fridge? And you oh, just, we always do. Yeah, yeah, so we, we try to, you try to cook for that meal, okay. right? So we usually do lunch and dinner. So we try to cook for those meals, but there's always a little bit of leftovers. And um, usually the guys will eat those for breakfast the next day or, okay. you know, whatever. So, and then at the end of the week, we do a big field day, just like in the military, right? We do this big cleaning of the station. And then whatever's left over in the fridge that's been there for the week, we throw it out or, or get rid of it or whatever. Um, but yeah. There's not a lot that goes to waste. Guys are pretty robust eaters. So are some of the guys in there like really good chefs now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like yeah. really good. Some guys can cook. <laughs> so I'll tell you a funny story. When I first got on the job, I started learning, you know, learn how to learn how to cook. Yeah. And um, I didn't have a whole lot of um, cooking background at that point. No. Sandwiches. My, yeah, my mom, <laughs> bless her heart, not much of a cook. And didn't pass on a whole lot of cooking skills. So I get in the the... Um, in the military, you know, I just ate what they fed me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I get, so now I get in the fire service. And I start learning how to cook. I come home and I'm like, oh, hey, honey, check this out. So I start cooking in the house. And then I'm at a party about a year after I got on the job. And my wife, I, I overhear her telling some friends, oh, yeah, I have a five-year plan. In five years, I'll never cook again. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and that's pretty true. She does not really? cook. She does not really cook. I do most of the cooking in the house. That's awesome. Though. I bet you a lot of people come in and you guys kind of help each other. I'm, at first, well, I'm thinking yeah, like it's probably sandwiches. But I'm thinking you guys are doing this so long you're probably getting really good at it oh yeah we're making meat yeah guys are making enchiladas and like you know um like delicious i can't even delicious stuff i'm trying to think like carne asada and big you know meals like that yeah beans from scratch you know just the whole nine yards a lot in in our neck of the woods a lot of mexican food yeah and then um you know of course you get the pasta with the you know you know you'll get uh chicken um chicken parmesan and you know lots of italian dishes and things like that and um you know for lunches we'll do like uh 
taco salad or tuna salad or um, sandwiches, you know, sometimes yeah. they do that, but they're usually they're like big hoagies. They're not like <laughs> not some little rinky dink sandwich. So is the, I'm assuming all that food's paid for by the, the state, right? No, we pay for it by ourselves. Do you really? Yeah. So we run, we do what's called a kitty, right? So we, all the condiments in the station and all that stuff are paid for by the guys. And, um, and, um, which, you know, when they're cramming it down your wazoo, um, they're paying for it. So, (laughs) (laughs) so shame on them. The, uh, and then the food, when we go shopping and all that kind of stuff, you know, we just all drop at the beginning of the day, we drop a certain amount of money on the table and that pays for chow for the day. And then if there's any, you know, so we have a budget each day, it's, you know, however many dollars, depending on the size of the station and you know, it feeds four to eight to 12 guys, depending on how many people are there. And then you take that bite, whatever's left over goes in the kitty. And we, if we have a big surplus at the end of the year, we'll sometimes we'll do like a surf and turf and go spend a bunch of money on, on a big meal, something like that, or for the holidays or something like that. But I have more questions about food. That's how, how I must be hungry. <laughs> you must be hungry. So I guess the question is like, is there any been, has there ever been any like major arguments about some guys wanting something in the cart and you're like, no, it's not in the budget. <laughs> oh yeah. I wouldn't say major arguments, but there's definitely the, the alpha dogs when it comes to like, who's in like, control. Fruity who's in pebbles, control. And you're like, no, we don't need fruity pebbles. What are you talking about? Exactly. That's hilarious. Exactly. That's, that's crazy to me. I would have assumed that all gets paid for by the state. Mm-mm. I mean, you could make an argument that it does sort of in a roundabout way, but it, but each guy pays for it individually. Yeah. You know. All right, to get off the topic of food, because apparently I'm always thinking about food. Hey, well, let's so let's talk about physical fitness, because that's one of my okay. one of the things I think is really important. So we talk about all this food, right? And yeah. and f- f- one of the number one killers of firefighters is um, diet, heart disease, well, it's cardiac events. So it's like forty. Nine percent of line of duty deaths are related to cardiac insult. Wow, right? It's huge. Yeah. And so, over the last, I've been on the job now just under twenty years. I think I said that, but you know, over the last twenty years, I've seen this change in the way guys are eating. You know, when I first got on the job, it was heavy meals all the time, pastas and lots of pizzas pastas and, and enchiladas and lots yeah. of heavy, heavy, uh, just heavy foods, high fat, high carb mm-hmm. loads. And um, over the years, I'm seeing a lot more guys going paleo uh, or paleo-esque or whatever and then doing like salads and, and just eating a little bit cleaner and then a huge focus toward um, fitness. Now, excuse me, fitness has always been a concern, right? Because you've got to be robust enough to do the job. Right. And when I first got on, it was, you know, you got to be hoss, you know, big, strong, strapping. Right? That's kind of the mental image we have of these firefighters, right? Right, right, yeah. And over the years, that's evolved a little bit and now you're seeing a lot more... Um, and uh, I know it's you know trademark name, but I'll throw it out there. Anyways, CrossFit, a lot CrossFit, of CrossFit, yeah, a lot of CrossFit S type workouts, right? Okay. Bumper plates in every station, rowing machines, stuff like that. So you're seeing this this the methodology of like high intensity interval training being used a lot more, um, which is interesting because it reflects the nature of the job, right? You yeah. get up and you go full speed for a period of time, usually for a fairly short period of time, you know, four to four to eight minutes or something like that, and then you know, and then you rest for a moment and then you go back to work like it's usually cycled um you know the first 30 seconds to two minutes of a fire are usually very intense mm-hmm. and then you're you settle into a working rhythm um and just you know your heart rate can be still pretty high but you're now you're settling into a rhythm of work um similar to the way you know this Crossfit. this yeah multimodal <clears throat> multimodal high intensity interval training is designed to, to be so you're seeing a lot more of that type of work which is uh which is fantastic um and matter of fact, uh, a lot of guys are training jujitsu as well. Um, so yeah, you're seeing I've that noticed, type of. I've noticed that. I noticed a lot of firefighters, a lot of cops, um, 
That's what I've seen the most. Yeah. Which I can understand is the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. Well, we, when you're dealing with the public, you get called into some strange places at strange hours, mm. and uh, you never know um, how you may have to handle somebody. Um, one instance comes to mind where we were in a staircase, just me and my crew, and this guy was gargoyled up in the corner. And uh, I say gargoyle because he was squatted down and crouched up like a gargoyle. And we tried talking to him, and he wouldn't talk to us. And, and um, yeah, my crew started to try to you know, get a blood pressure on him, get his hands, and his, his buddies over there, yeah, no, he doesn't do drugs. He's never done anything. Something's wrong with him. Da, 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 da. And um, uh, as they're pulling his arm out a little bit to get a blood pressure, he swung at my partner, and I happened to be right behind the guy, so I just dropped him behind him and took his back and put him in a rear naked choke. Choke um, him out? No, no, no. I just, I just <laughs> held him tight enough. I just put the lock on him just to hold him in position. And then we called for PD and it was just a, it was a position I could hold him in mm. that was secure and yeah. safe and protected me, protected the crew. Yeah. And, um, uh, to this day, I remember the guy's name was Phil. And, uh, I remember talking, I'm like, Phil, you got to calm down. You got to calm down, Phil. And, uh, and then PD shows up and we're like, Oh, thank goodness you're here. They're like, Oh, you got it all under control. I'm like, Would you please put this fool in handcuffs? I'm getting tired. So what was the deal? Is this on drugs? He was on drugs. Yeah. yeah. That's and the first thing I would assume. Yeah. It, what's interesting was, uh, he and his buddy were bodybuilders and mm. he, they, he wasn't huge. He's a big dude. Wasn't oh, huge. Okay. No, no, he wasn't huge. He was, he was yoked, but he wasn't super big. Strong. Um, yeah, fairly, but yeah. in that position, I had good control right, of him, right? right? I had hips control and spine control, yeah. and so it was pretty decent control of him. But he um, he was on amphetamines, so I think mm. he was trying to cut or something like that, and they found uh, marijuana and amphetamines in his system. It was double dipping. So I think he was trying to <laughs> trying to cut a little bit, right? So, yeah. you know, you take a little too much of the fun juice, and that's what happens. <laughs> you gargoyle up, start acting, acting misbehaving. Interesting. So, but that was, you know, the thing about jujitsu was I was able to to hold him in a secure position without hurting him, or without you, any, or anybody yeah. else getting hurt. Right. Yeah. So that was that was the the beauty of having a little bit of skill in jujitsu. And I'm by no means skilled, but I have just enough to be. And that's why a lot of guys are are getting into that type of martial art, you know, grappling, because a lot of times we just need to be able to secure somebody mm -hmm. and to to so that we can help them. Yeah. <laughs> There's that video of, um, I don't know, you know who Matt Serra is? Oh, yeah. I saw yeah. that video. Did you see that video of him holding <laughs> just on that on the guy's guy chest. And he's like, calm down, buddy. He's holding it, sitting exactly. on his chest, and he's like holding both of his hands by mm -hmm. the wrist. And he's like, calm down, buddy. Calm That's down. That's exactly and right. And he's like, he's like, I'm going to kick your ass or whatever he said. And he's like trying to throw his legs up to flip him. I'm like, you're not going to flip that, dude. That is like 200 plus pounds. You're not going right. to flip that, dude. And he's just like, relax, buddy, relax. And the cops come over, and he's like, are you here? He's like, here, you got this? You got this? And then the moment the cops come over, the guy's like, I want to press charges on him. <laughs> <laughs> Are you crazy? He made me look like an idiot. Yeah, that's probably what it was. He's probably yeah. pissed off because of that. Embarrassed. He should be embarrassed. Acting like a fool. No kidding. Drinking a little too much. Do you guys maintenance the vehicles? Uh, no. So um, our guys do just basic, basic, basic field stuff. Mm -hmm. we, we clean it. We inspect it. Look for stuff. But major, um, major mechanical stuff usually goes to the shop. Okay. We've got certified like fire truck mechanics. I couldn't I tell you. You can't take that anywhere. Yeah, I know. I think that the Firestone. I couldn't tell you what they're. Uh, <laughs> actually, you'd be surprised. Really? So a lot of times we get like a t like a get a tire change or whatever. You get this contractor that comes out from Firestone yeah. or from some other okay. you know, some other company that does big truck stuff, and they'll do certain things to it. You guys um, ever gotten a flat? Because those things aren't oh, light. Yeah. They're, oh, they're yeah, yeah. heavy. Yeah, a couple hundred pounds, right? Those, those, those tires. tires? Yeah. Oh, we're not changing them. Yeah. No, yeah. no. They they come out with a massive air compressor, and it's a big deal. Changing those tires. The whole, yeah. 
Yeah, get in that truck. There's not like you can put a little uh, bottle jack under there. It's just like click, 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 <laughs> click, click. I got this. Don't worry. Give me a couple minutes. Click, click, click. No, if we're sometimes we're you, know, you get a flat or mechanical, you're dead in the water until somebody can come out with a. Well, they got to bring that tire. Big wrecker. Like you have that sitting around. Yeah, you don't right? have a spare in the hose yeah, bed or something. Yeah, yeah. no, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah so. Interesting. So, you know, that's, you brought up that guy that was gargoyled up, right? Yeah. Um, that's one thing, like, as a bystander, like, as a, as a normal bystander person like myself, like, I think of firefighters and I think of people just trying to take down fires, right? Right. But you get probably a lot of people on drugs or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get a lot Absolutely. of those calls, right? Uh-huh. Absolutely. When those calls come in, are they also calling police to also assist at the same time? Typically, yeah. So well, so what happens is a call will come into through nine one one, right? And then from there, they, for lack of a better expression, dole it out, right? They'll figure out who the appropriate resource is to send based on the nature. Mm. So a lot of times we'll get there and we're like, whoa, this is not what we thought it was, right? Mm. You get bad information or you don't, you know, you got passerby calls and, you know, they just saw a glimpse of something. They don't really know what it was, but they saw a guy laying on the curb, right? It could have been a violent incident. We don't know why he's laying there. We don't know why he's laying there. It could be. Uh, he could have had a seizure or a diabetic episode. It could be something just medical, or he could be uh, a homeless guy who's just, or somebody who's intoxicated and laid down on the street right, or right, on the right. sidewalk or whatever. Or it could have been a violent incident and the perpetrators hide around the corner. Like you don't know. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a the, those nine one one dispatchers do have a pretty tricky job when it comes to uh, sussing out who What's to send. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially so, when people aren't panicking, right? They're, they're right. Yeah. Under stress. Especially when it's, yeah, if it's a family member and they're like, you know, there was a violent incident that took place and they're, they, their loved one's not breathing. All they say is my loved one's not breathing. Right. Yeah. They don't go into the details about what took place necessarily. Um, that being said, we, um, over the years, we've gotten very, very good about um, communicating with PD directly. Mm. So our fire trucks and, and all the staff on there will, when they go out, they'll have a, um, a line that is attributed to PD that's in that area. And so if they have anything that's uh, uh, unsafe or inappropriate, they'll, they either won't go in or they'll notify PD. They'll get PD responding you know, to help support them or whatever. So that's a very um, important part about their, of their safety in that regard. But, yeah, they get, we get called on all kinds of strange stuff, shootings and stabbings and drug overdoses. And, and of course, all the general medical stuff, you know, uh, um, scorpion stings, you know, flu symptoms, mm, you know, allergic reactions, you name it. Guys, we get called out on that stuff. Um, domestic stuff. And so are you guys prepared for all of those calls? Like if you get a scorpion sting call, do you guys have like anti-venom or are you just transport? No, people? that's one of those things where we go and we treat the symptoms and you, and you get them to the hospital. Okay. So, you know, like if you get a scorpion sting, it's not a big deal, right? Big, robust, healthy individual. You're going to be fine. That's right, bro. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you get like a, um, an older, frail, yeah. medically unstable yeah. patient, it's a bad thing for them, right? Or a baby. Um, you know, I had a little kiddo who was like, I don't know, she was two and a half or three, and we got called for a sting, and the baby's crying, and there's no, nothing else. The baby's just crying, and there's no sign or any mark on this kid, right? So I'm kind of suspicious. I've never seen a scorpion sting before, and um, so we're kind of curious about that. And um, and uh, when we made a decision, we're like, well, mom said she saw a scorpion. Let's just transport this kid. We don't know what's going to happen. As we're, as we're walking into the hospital with this kid on the gurney, the kid goes into a respiratory arrest. So, holy crap, had we not made the right decision, you know, could have not, not gone well. So, it's a very, uh, it can be a tenuous uh, decision-making process sometimes as you have, 
you, know, you don't have all the information. Sometimes the information is not that good. You don't necessarily see a presentation that's obvious. Mm. So you have to be very thoughtful and discerning as you're working through some of these situations. So are you guys working with like the local hospitals to know where you can take them or where you oh, yeah. it's all all networked okay. so typically we go to the closest most appropriate hospital so like some hospitals are cardiac experts right so if we have a cardiac patient we'll go directly there if it's a uh a critical cardiac patient we'll go to the closest hospital stabilize them and then they'll get them to the right hospital from there right so depending on where they are in that continuum of of living and dying we have to make a decision based on on keeping them alive first and then we go from there to you know maybe a more appropriate critical care facility for their heart or whatever so how far would you drive a patient to like a cardiac they're not critical they're cardiac patient and the cardiac hospital is like 20 miles away are so, you taking them all the well, way so, that yeah way? so let's say somebody's like yeah i'm a heart patient i'm having chest pain and then we get there and they're like well i took my nitroglycerin and my chest pain's gone okay we're going to transport you to you know a cardiac facility um, if they're stable, but if they're like having some kind of ventricular tachycardia or some kind of arrhythmia in their heart, we're going to go to the closest facility, get you stabilized mm-hmm. and then go from the, and then let them hospitals and the doctor figure out what to do with you next. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, and then with like little kiddos, we, we look at, you know, like, Hey, can we take this kid to PCH? Do we want them to go to children's hospital? Cause they have the most appropriate, uh, uh, expertise right, with little kids right. right so what do we do well depends on how stable they are if the kid's pretty sick but it's a couple extra miles well maybe we'll go there because it's the best place for that kiddo and wasting time stopping somewhere else when it's just a couple of miles you know so, if they make that decision so if hospitals are on diversion is that something uh, that, that that you guys are notified of or is that the dispatcher knows about that or um that's a good question no usually when we Diversion, usually we get notified of that when we call in. Okay. So, so you're I'm, calling ahead of time saying, I have a patient that has this and yeah, this and this. Yeah. So if the patient's uh, advanced life support type patient and we're going to take them to the nearest facility and I call and let's just say it's you know, one of the big hospitals or whatever and they say, hey, we're on diversion. And I'm like, that's all well and good, but we're going to trump your conversion because we got a critical patient. Mm. We can do that. But if we're like, oh, it's a stub toe and they're like, we're on diversion. Okay, we'll go to the next hospital. Gotcha. So what happens if you're transporting that patient to the next hospital? Uh, Does dispatch know not to give you any more calls? I mean, what happens if that call happens in your area? So we're out of service. So, so... Well, a couple things happen. So you've got you've got your fire engine and you've got the ambulance. Okay. If it's a critical patient, the crew off the fire engine, part of that crew will jump on the ambulance with the patient and go to the hospital right, to maintain continuity of care and get them uh, the appropriate treatment they need all the way to the hospital. Um, in which case, the engine's out of service, the rescue's out of service, right? Sometimes if it's a, like, well, let's go back to the stub toe. I broke him, guy's got a broken toe and he needs to go to the hospital because it's bad. But it's not a critical patient. The crew that's on the ambulance will just take them and the engine will go back into service. Okay. So they won't leave their area. Um, So it's a very dynamic, fluid uh, series of events that's taking place all over the city. So you'll, you know, you see one of these big, big fires that's happening somewhere in the valley and, you know, there's... 40 fire trucks there well what happens to all like the rest of the city like it's been stripped of all these resources well we have an automatic aid system so the other elements of the city will backfill those spots not all of them but they'll backfill to try to create a network of coverage across the city interesting and across the valley interesting yeah so it's it's a very dynamic um 
and, and somewhat transient but but dynamic system. So it's got to be constantly moving and backfilling and adjusting as as needed. And sometimes, you know, like if you have one engine out of an area, go out of service for a medical call, well, we know they're going to be back in 20 minutes. We're not going to backfill their area. But if a call kicks out in their area, the next due truck will come in. So, or the next appropriate response will come in or whatever that, whatever that truck's capabilities are, whatever the need is, somebody will come, even if that area is stripped. Interesting. So that's part of this whole automatic aid and, you know, shuffle and cover kind of positioning of, of apparatus and stuff. It's and who's making those calls? So that's happening at the alarm room okay. you know, at that level. And, you know, sometimes the, the, the shift commanders will get involved if it's a very, if there's a much more um, a big, large-scale event, the so shift commanders will get involved and they'll start talking about what they need to do. It can go all the way up to kind of recalling employees so, to staff additional trucks. So say something big happens, a massive event takes place in the city, they have the ability to recall people and bring them in. So is there a shift commander at every firehouse? No. Or is it just kind of no, one so, over district? So, yeah, exactly. Kind of over the, well, the shift commander's over the entire city for that day, right? Okay. And, uh, you know, same thing with your, your alarm room supervisor. They're up there kind of watching the deployment of all these resources and managing those resources. If they see a need, they'll start making communication with the bosses and say, hey, here's what's going on. We got this big thing going down. Are you aware of it? And then they start making adjustments as they need to from there. Interesting. Yeah. It's a neat. It's a neat process. It's a. It's a very robust system. It reminds me of the military a bit. Like, is a lot of variables, a lot of things you got to control, a lot of things mm-hmm. moving, a lot of puzzles, pieces moving around. Um, is the shift commander the guy who's scheduling all of you guys? Um, you mean on a daily basis? Yeah. Like yeah. Basically. Yeah. So that one guy or girl takes care of like a whole bunch of different firehouses. Yes. That's a lot of work. A lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, well, and their you know their job is to provide this super high level strategic oversight for the whole entire, you know, the region. Wow, that's a big job. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Wow, absolutely. A lot of pieces. Absolutely, you know, especially when you know when things are going smoothly and the day to day operations are cruising along. It's you know, I'm sure it's uh, not that big of a deal. But then when things go sideways, when people get hurt, when bad things happen in the city, you know. Um, to an individual or when there's a big event or something like that taking place, it gets very, it escalates very quickly. Interesting. So uh, let's go back to other stuff. I have other questions. Um, training. So like I'm assuming all of everybody that's working in a shift is pretty much cross-trained. Like everybody can do everybody else's job. No, no, to a degree. There's there's a lot of that, but not necessarily. So like, let's start at the smallest level. So say you have a fire company, right? You've got four guys on four folks on a on an engine company um they may or may not be cross-trained so you've got a captain and the engineer who's the guy who drives the truck and runs the pump and then two firefighters you may not they may not be able to do each other's jobs Mm. so hopefully that's not a problem hopefully they all stay together all day long and then you're good right um but a lot of times uh you'll have a an engineer who's got some seasoning and they can move up to work as a captain. Or you have firefighters who, who can move up and work as a captain or have been trained to, to operate the pump and drive the truck, right? Sometimes that's formal and sometimes it's informal. So there's times when organizationally they'll do training to make that happen and guys will get certified to do those out of class or move up positions. And then you have times when, you know, I, I'll just take a guy on my crew and I'll train him. Hey, you need to know how to drive. You need to know how to operate the pump. Let's train you on how to do that. In case something happens, you can step up and fill a gap. Um, so that does that happens at the individual firehouse, and then that, that percolates out throughout the whole entire city. So you have all around the city, you have people who are capable of stepping up and filling those different billets in different ways. 
Um, but it's it, sometimes it's structured and sometimes it's not. So what if like you answer a call for like a fire, right? And you guys kind of have to go inside the house. Do all four of you go in or is it just like a two and two? Because I could see a situation where like the guy who drives the truck is the only one who could drive the truck. Yep. And let's say he breaks his foot or something, you know, knock on wood, breaks his foot, trying to do what he's got to do. And then he gets transported out. How do you get that truck home? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, if, if you, worst case scenario, if you had, if you didn't have anybody who was capable of driving the truck at all, you'd find somebody. So we'd call find somebody in. Yeah. You call your, you call your battalion chief or your, your boss, or you call the station over and say, Hey, can you guys run a guy over here? We gotta get this truck back or whatever. There's definitely ways we could cover that if yeah. we needed to. Okay. Um, you have enough people on, on shift every day, almost, uh, in my agency of almost 400 people of a day on, on duty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the uh, so that support network is definitely there. Um, you know, to go back to your question about how a fire works, you know, that first that first in engine company has four folks on it generally, right? Mm-hmm. And if it's a if there's fire blowing and they know they've got an, an, a working event, they'll actually grab a fire hydrant, right, connect to it, and then drive into the fire so they can have a, they already established that water supply, right? So now you've got one guy back at the fire hydrant. Right? Then you pull up to the front. Now you've got your captain and one firefighter. They'll start pulling hoses and make their way into the fire. And your engineer will start connecting the water supply up and, and flow water. So from the fire hydrant to the fire truck, from the fire truck to the nozzle, to the hose line that they're going to squirt water on the fire with. The That's the basic simple operation. Right Now you have two guys out. The guy who was at the fire hydrant, he runs up. You've got him and the fire engineer right, standing by the truck two guys out and then the two guys go in the firefighter and the mm-hmm. captain go in and start putting the fire out right so that um it's gonna sound kind of funny but that mat- meets our osha standard for what's called two in two out right you have okay. two, two guys in okay. and then two guys backing them up kind of an osha Makes standard sense. yeah the good news is is that when in when a fire goes out um, we we just send a fairly robust response, so you don't just get one fire truck. You'll get a fire truck plus another couple of fire trucks plus a ladder truck, and then a re- an ambulance, um, or we call them rescues. You'll get this other apparatus. So all these people show up, and that first that first company officer who was on scene will start giving them work to do. So you start making assignments and giving them things to do that you know standard kind of expectations, but give them assignments and put them to work. So you have a lot of you have a lot of personnel there pretty quickly to to manage the work. So if you have two guys in, two guys out, uh-huh. and another fire truck arrives, then two guys, two more guys go in if needed? Or do sure, they? absolutely. So what will happen is usually that guy who was standing, the, the guy who took the fire hydrant and mm-hmm. now is standing next to the engineer, he'll usually come up and support that first interior crew. So now they have three inside. Okay. Right? And then the, the second engine company will get another assignment. So those four guys will go do something on the fire ground, whatever that might be, pull a second hose line or do other, some other type of work, open the building up in some way, force doors, open windows, whatever, different types of behaviors that they might do on the fire ground, depending on what the need is. So I guess we'll, we'll stay on this topic. I have more questions. <laughs> um, Besides, I mean, normally would you go in to put out the fire instead of, I'm just thinking of, in my head I'm thinking of, You'd go in to save somebody, right? But also, do, would you go in just to put out the fire? So that's a, a really good question. So there's two, a couple things that have to happen on the fire, right? One is the number one priority is life safety. Right. right? So you have to, we have to assess whether or not we're uh, able to or need to uh, rescue people or, or affect, a, affect a rescue of some sort. The second thing is property conservation. So we want to 
do whatever we can to save these people's property. So as soon as we realize that there's no life in harm's way, then it's all about property conservation. So we're going to do everything we can to save property. So um, there's a whole complex matrix of decision making that takes place very rapidly on the front end of a firefight. And one of those questions is, uh, is there savable life that I need to be concerned about as I'm approaching this event? So. Um, so that's a really good, a really good question. Um, but you, that's one of the things you're ruling out quickly. Is there savable life and how much property can I save and where do I do that from and all that stuff like, how do I get to a position to do that? I'm assuming you would treat like a, uh, a pet life the same as you would like a human life in a situation mm. like that? Uh, kind of. Not really. Kind of, as you say with the laughter. <laughs> no, no. Like we definitely want to save people's pets, right? right, um, right. I would say we treat them more like property. We're gonna okay. do. We're gonna aggressively rescue them, but it boils down to risk, right? right. How much risk right. are we willing to assume to save savable life versus savable property? And um, you know, I I'm not willing to give your life or the life of my firefighters for or someone's dog. dog. And I hate to say that because I love dogs. I get it. <laughs> I get it with the fishbowl. <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are people's, you know, family. I get yeah. it, but at the same time, it's a different it's a different balance than say it's a child right i'm willing to i'm truly willing to hang it all out there for somebody's kiddo which i get um, it i mean your firefighters have families too and they've got they've got their own lives you don't want to risk those lives right yeah. well and, and you, when you say that it's it's a matter of what are we risking it for right you know are you willing to put your life on the line for somebody else's life absolutely but for the life of a dog uh not so much um, and, and for a building or, for, you know, and now you talk about buildings that are already, you know, say a building's majority consumed and they're going to, you know, what, you know what they're going to do to it. They're going to, they're going to level it and build a new house. So do you really want to risk anybody's life for that? Mm. Absolutely not. Um, so we, we want to save property where it's savable. Um, but we have to be thoughtful about that. And that's a, a tough decision because you have to understand fire dynamics. You have to understand fire behavior. You have to understand, you have to have some experience with what, a building that's lost looks like versus one that's just barely on fire. Hey, we can get ahead of that if we if we act now. Um, yeah, it's one. Uh, that's one thing that like I think when I was very young and I went to uh, Universal Studios and they have that backdraft. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and you see that stuff and you're just like, oh, this is intense. Like you don't yeah. you see it in the movies and you're like, whatever, right? But yeah. when you feel the fire, when you see like the effects of how air can kind of really affect things, yeah. it's, it's 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 impressive. Well, I'll tell you what's interesting is the. Uh, in the movie Backdraft, every fire scene, they walk in, they can see all the way across the structure. They can, you know, there's flames and they can see everything. In a real fire, um, that visibility lasts for moments. Huh. Okay. Because usually the products of combustion create tremendous amount of smoke, smoke and particulates and all this over, all this excess uh, unburned uh, hmm. garbage in the air. And uh, so you usually can't see anything can't see your hand in front of your face so i guess that's my my next question that just came to my mind was i know you know when whenever you have like a water leak and and it you know absorbs into the drywall and then it becomes moldy that's a toxic situation right Mm. is there a toxic situation involved with like drywall burning um you worried about that? No, kind of stuff? not so much. Not, I wouldn't say drywall per se, and I, I may be speaking completely out of school here because I don't think so. Drywall does not burn very easily, yeah. but 
but really what's the load inside of people's houses is all the synthetics and plastics and, and um, chemicals, yep. cleaning chemicals. and Well, not even so much that, just the, pro, just the things that are in your house, the mm. furniture and the, the, all the synthetic products. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm vapor locking here. I don't have any words. <laughs> the, um, all the things that are in your house are made of synthetics, even like tables are laminated. What are they laminated with? They're laminated with wood chips and glue, yeah. right? And that glue is highly burns, toxic yeah. and burns super easy. And then modern toys are all made out of plastic. So, you know, I challenge you to find a, a, a Tonka truck that's made out of steel or metal yeah. that they don't exist. So all of those things um, release gases and release, um, they're made out of spun hydrocarbons. And so they release that stuff into the air, which doesn't burn at the same rate that wood does. So in the, and this is going to be a little too techy, I suppose, but you know, normal room air is like 21% oxygen approximately. Mm. And so, uh, wood burns pretty completely at 21% oxygen, right? What do you mean by pretty completely? You still get a little bit of smoke, but okay. a small amount, okay. right? So it burns almost all the products of all the products of combustion are consumed in the flame at 21% oxygen. But if you take this styrofoam cup or this plastic lid on this cup here, it will emit a tremendous amount of, of uh, black sooty garbage mm. from it because it won't burn completely in 21% oxygen. So that does a couple things, and I'll try not to get too crazy, but if you have a contained room, it consumes all the oxygen in that room very, very fast. And so that room fills up with just black toxic smoke in very, very quickly. And these products have a um, higher heat release rate, so they burn hotter, faster than wood. So people's houses are super heated, super fast. Um, and all, I mean, that's, I don't even know why I went down this path. But the point in saying all that is that that leads to, um, leads to ev events of flashover and backdraft and things like that more quickly um, and sucks the oxygen out of the room, fills it with toxic gases. And because of that, the survivability in these fires has gone down over the years. Um, so back to the backdraft example, these guys are walking in with flames everywhere and no face pieces on back in the thirties and forties and twenties and early fire days. That's possible, um, a little bit. And, but in today's modern fire environment, that does not exist at all. You can't do it. So it, you guys are wearing like full face gear and then breathing apparatus. Absolutely. Yeah. Not because not only are those gases, um, super toxic to us, um, but they're super heated. Uh, so they'll, not only will they burn you up, but they'll, they'll uh, poison you or poison your body. Um, and not just short term, but uh, well, long term as well, right? So all those carcinogens and all those gases get into your bloodstream and they'll, they'll uh, do damage. Do serious damage, yeah. yeah. So when you have all the gear on, how much weight do you have on you? Uh, 50 to 75 pounds. So it's still spread over mobile, your whole body. Right? You're still pretty mobile. Yeah, yeah, somewhat. For the most part. I mean, you know, you think about it, those, the pants over your joints, it's over your, over your shoulders, you got a backpack on, right? So it's pulling down your shoulders. You've got bulky, bulky coat over your elbows and over your knees. And so your mobility is restricted. Um, but yeah, you can, you can work. I mean, you got to be able to pull people out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's so. This goes back all the way back to physical, physical fitness, fitness, right? <laughs> like you have to be able to function in this restricted environment, and right. so you got to. The we go, but the very beginning of our conversation, we talked about discipline mm -hmm. and this idea that um, you know, over the course of twenty years, a uh, twenty-five year career for a firefighter, what keeps you alive and what makes you useful, personally, uh, the way I see it, is um, is your ability to function on the fire ground. Right. If you are not physically fit, if you gain a bunch of weight and you allow yourself to let you let yourself go, which we see happen in police department, in the fire department, we see these guys who have, I don't know if they've just given up or, 
or just age has caught up with them, right? Yeah. They've gained a bunch of weight. It is a problem. It gets harder over 40. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, over 30, I would even say. Yeah. But, I can um, tell you that. Yeah. So that the, the discipline to get up every day and to go and work is incredibly important. Um, and by work, I mean go work out. Go right. and put in some training and make it specific to what your the expected, expected behaviors are. You know, if you go in there and just cruise on a treadmill – 20 minutes for, you know, a couple times a week, right. you're not doing your, your due diligence right. when it comes to, you know, maintaining what you've said you would maintain, which is the capacity to affect rescue, to save lives, to do the job. And I know that sounds a little bit melodramatic, but no, that, it makes but sense, it, but that's the expected yeah. behavior, you know? So I guess that brings up another question. What, is there any contractual or, or something that stipulates that you're supposed to stay at a certain physical fitness or you do you have a physical no, fitness test every year no, or no, I mean no, how do you don't. how do you keep guys from getting out of shape and not being able to do their jobs I wish I had the answer to that I, on and I mean I say yeah, that sincerely yeah. so organizationally um you know we we ask guys hey we there's you know annual physicals for health purposes um but there's not this uh uh test annual test or anything like that and early in my career I was like yeah, just like the military. The military does annual tests every year. It's scaled so that if you're older, you, you have a different metric to meet, et cetera. Oh, okay. And so you know, the military model is very much like that. Now, that being said, the military owns you. So <laughs> for them, like, they're like, hey, you're my commodity. I yeah. expect you to stay yeah. at this level. For us, um, I, I would like to see something similar to that. You know, like, let's have some expectations. Let's have some personal pride and expect guys to maintain a certain right. level of capacity, right? right? Um, but... But, you know, it's a little bit unrealistic. And, and um, so we, we do uh, minimum company standards every year, which are like kind of the minimum fundamental skill sets. If you can get through those minimum f- skill sets, there's usually not an issue. Um, and so we rely on supervisors to make sure guys are doing what they're supposed to be doing. We rely on, you know, a little bit of peer pressure to make sure guys are maintaining their health. There are guys who just flat out don't care and give up. Um, and usually they're, uh, organizationally their careers just peter out. They find themselves working at very slow stations. They find themselves mm. pushing themselves to the periphery of the organization. Um, I mean, I don't blame you. I can understand how you need you need to be able to trust the guy you're with. Yeah, and, absolutely. And it's not just like, hey, you know, you're going to bring me food later. It's it's like you're, you're going to be saving my life. And right. You need to be able to. Yeah, we to don't do need it. a station cook. Right. right? We need a guy right. who can be the station cook, but also whoop ass on a firefight, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Because I think for certain branches of the military, they do have, not military, I'm sorry, certain branches of like, uh, um, the words escape. You mean like public like safety agencies public or safety, something? Yeah, like for police officers or yeah. marshals or whatever. I think they all have like a, some of them have some sort of physical fitness right. assessment or whatever they have to right. pass well, every... all of them, I will say this, at the very least, all of them have a barrier to entry, which is this minimum standard, right? right? I would submit to you that there should be some type of uh, ongoing uh, minimum standard. That's my personal opinion. And, um, you know, I know that's not a, a real popular decision, a real popular suggestion for a lot of reasons, but... That's this. Uh, really, that's not that's not something. Well, that, I would say among the troops, it's it could be a fairly popular thing, but I think in a management level, there's some res- there's a little bit of resistance to that. Yeah, because it's hard. That's a hard thing to do. And what happens if a guy's not meeting the minimum standard? What do we do? Just boot him out? I think you give him a certain amount of time to. I mean, look, I have less compassion than some might suppose, but I think you give him a certain amount of time to get into that position. The reality yeah. is, like, this isn't 
you know, I'm not making a burger for you and I have to be in a certain shape to, to make a burger. Like, yeah. whatever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about completely different jobs. Skills. And that's, I totally 100% agree with you on that. And that's so, from an organizational perspective, it's our responsibility to foster an environment that encourages that right. and that encourages that that consistent wellness and and setting some standards for people and, and make them achievable, but hold people accountable to those standards. So I... My goal, if I were ever king for a day, would be to <laughs> to institute some type of of change, a cultural change, behavioral change, right? Because we can't just mandate it. We could, we could, but that, but then what do you end up with? You end up with, do you end up with just a just firefighters who are just about physicality? Because we need way more than that. We need people who are physical, but intelligent and compassionate and on down that line, right? You need a broad spectrum of capacity from our firefighters. So just to say I need meatheads who are physically robust, I can get you those, um, but we need way more than that. So right. we need to get our savvy, smart, intelligent people to be working out as well. Like that's a that's a component of that. So it's a very, it, you know, we hire them in the beginning and they meet this metric when they're in their mid-20s or whatever. Right. How do we encourage them to continue to maintain that metric? That's a challenge for us that, that we have to address from... Uh, organizational structure and um, cultural paradigm, I think, has to be a part of that. Like, you have to infuse it in lots of different levels. But, I mean, you, you mentioned it when we talked about that physical fitness test, that it's kind of, you know, well, kind of a joke. So, I will say this. When I first started testing, the te- the physical exam that I took was freaking savage. And the idea was that you would go as fast as you could. So, you would haul the mail uh, through the whole entire process. And you flop on the end and you're like, how fast did I go? And, you know, the faster you went, the better. Um, the new test, uh, the, you're not allowed to run. You can move with a sense of purpose, but you can't run. What's the, what's the logic behind that? Well, the, well, that's a good question. I don't know the express logic. I would tell you what I think is. I think they're trying to, to this sense of uh, on the fire ground, you are pacing yourself. You are tempo driven. You are, um, as opposed to flat out sprinting, you're moving with purpose and being deliberate in your actions as opposed to uh, hauling ass from spot to spot. Mm. Um, and I will say, you know, you hear guys say, uh, there's an argument in the fire service about running on the fire ground. You know, my take on it is, uh, I, I like the expression, slow is smooth, smooth is quick, quick is fast. Okay. Right? Um, and I apply that to the fire ground because if I don't look at a building appropriately and I don't size it up, if I ran there, that didn't help anybody. If I don't know what the building looks like, right? I'm not sizing up the situation appropriately. Um, that being said, uh, if your child is hanging out of a window and I'm walking, you're going right, to be like, right, what, right, what right. does that say? Right. I need to be moving with purpose. Um, so there's a balance there between being super aggressive and being, uh, aggressive and smart. Um, there's a balance that you have to, uh, strike. So you have to move. When I say move with a sense of purpose, there's a sense of urgency in right. what you're doing, but it's deliberate and focused and purposeful, not just pin your ears back and run like a bat out of hell right, right, which right, right. you see some people do and they make mistakes and they're running around in circles trying to recover from their mistakes and that's not good you know you don't want that but you don't want someone moving so slow that they're not actually effective they become operationally ineffective because they're not you know truly getting work done I just feel like there's got to be a, a middle ground right like there's got to be something that keeps people in a certain level so you're absolutely right so when we train people um the you have to have training that is intense enough and um and job related enough so that they're getting sets and reps so that when they get in so that they are re- 
repeatedly being inoculated to the um, stresses on the fire ground. And as you do that, the stresses on the fire ground become a non-issue, right? So, and then I can move more quickly. So the more I train a guy on how to size up a situation, right? Looking at a fire and evaluating the building, evaluating the hazards, evaluating the risks, blah, blah, blah. The more we do that, the more effective they become at doing that, right? And it becomes second nature. Now they can move quicker. He can move more quickly because he's right. able to size it up in a snapshot versus walking. So to me, it's a training issue, right? The more we train on it, because if we say, well, we're just going to get real life experience, uh, we just don't fight that many fires. I mean, there's a fire every day in the, in the Valley of the Sun. Like, there's fires all the time going on over here. However, there's so many, you know, they're spread out across this big city. And so how do you get those repetitions in? Training. You got to train, you got to train, you got to train. And, um, you know, that, that, that to me is a, is a measure of, of professional excellence. And, you know, going back to the whole physical fitness piece, showing up prepared physically is a measure of professional excellence, right? Same thing with, uh, I'll call it your knowledge, skills, and abilities. Having sharp knowledge, skills, and abilities is a contributing factor to your capacity to perform when, when the, the shit gets real. So if you allow any one of those pieces to languish, you're going to be operationally ineffective. Um, and so when people say, well, oh, you should, you know, you got to run on the fire ground. Mm, you shouldn't run, but you should, you should be so skilled that no matter how fast you're moving, you're operationally effective, right? I don't want you moving okay. so fast that you're not able to be effective. Right, right. You don't want to run in, next thing you know, realize you don't have the gear, and then you got to run back and get the gear. And, right. Yeah, yeah. Or you ran up and you didn't look at the building, and now if something bad happens, you don't know how to get out. Right. Right, because part of that, part of that size of the building is understanding where the fire is, what the fire is doing, where the exits are on the buildings, should you need to make an exit. So say you go in one way, you may have to take a victim out a different way. Well, what's that way going to be? What's the layout of the building look like? Where's the bedrooms? Where's the bathroom? Where's so how do you know that? Do you guys ahead of time know the, the, well, the blueprints for the... No, no, not necessarily. But if you study buildings um, as part of your you know, job knowledge, right, you begin, to, you begin to look at buildings and see standard layouts. Mm. And when you go on, you know, and even like day-to-day operations, you go on medical calls, you go in and out of these buildings all the time. Pay attention to them. Right, look at the building, understand the layout of the building, know where the kitchens are in these standard layouts, right? Because there's usually a standard floor plan in every subdivision or every building or whatever. And then if you look at, you can look at the outside of the buildings and see by the, the nature of the windows where the living rooms are versus where the bathrooms are or versus where the kitchens are. I wonder if that's different because here we have a lot of cookie cutter kind of subdivisions. They all kind of mm-hmm. look similar, they have similar style, similar colors. I wonder yeah. if that's a difference. In like the East Coast, where everything is, it, you would think, but the it's not really because nope. building design is is fundamental, right? So even there, if you spend enough time looking at the buildings, you learn to recognize, you know, they'll have uh, dormers and dormer windows, and like what's a real dormer versus what's a uh, uh, a pseudo dormer or, or what's a you know like where the kitchens are in these basic houses, you know, and they have different types of framing and learning how to identify what that framing is and or where would they put the fireplace? Will the fireplace be in the living room or would it be in a kitchen? Right. You know, right. so little things like that, like, oh, there's the chimney, so the fireplace is there, so that's where the living room is. So, like, finding out, being able to look at the building and ID aspects of the building that tell you things. What are the signature trademarks of those buildings, and how, what do they tell you about the inside layout? So, are you having this conversation, like, are you staring at the building as it's, like, on fire, and you're trying to figure this out with all your buddies, or, like, no, but as you're well, driving up, you're paying yes attention and, for these things? Yes and no. Okay. So, it's a snapshot. So, I've done it so frequently now that as I look at a building, I just know okay. it's intuitive, but that takes time. So that's that, that the evolution of the training process, right? So if we want people to be faster and to be more, more, I keep using the expression operationally effective, but if you want them to be effective 
then they have to have those repetitions so that when they look at it, they just know. Um, like, uh, what's a good example? When you go into the gym now and someone puts you in a closed guard and they, be, <laughs> they begin to sit up and you, and you go, oh, my hand's on the mat, you know they're going for Kimura. Right. Right? Like you just know. Like you don't even have to think about it anymore. You snap your arm back immediately because you go, oh, snap. I've been in this position too many times. Um, same thing happens here is the more repetitions that they get in in training, the more they begin to recognize the hazards as they present themselves. They don't even have to. They don't consciously think about it. It becomes part of their subconscious. Gotcha. It becomes part of the internal dialogue. It's just intuiting in your brain what's happening. And that only comes with training. Now, here's an expression I picked up a long time ago, and it's, uh, I think it's uh, attributed to the Navy SEALs, or it could be attributed to any high-speed, low-drag people. But the expression is, no man in a, in a, in a hazardous situation or in a dangerous situation, no man... Oh, no, I messed up the dang quote. <laughs> <laughs> you lost it, dude. I saw oh, it in your yeah. eyes. Oh, I was my, like, oh, you oh, lost it. Oh, snap. Oh. <laughs> I remember. Try again. In All right, a, you're going to dangerous situation. You're going to edit this. In a dangerous <laughs> no, situation, <laughs> no man rises to the occasion. They fall to their level of training. Interesting. And so, yeah. And so that's you know you think oh I'll just I'll I'll be better, I'll be I'll be there I'll be good I'll rise up and that's just not true. Your level of training is the level at which you're going to manage yourself at no matter what it is in a fight think about it in training right in, in jiu-jitsu it's the same thing you you're not going to suddenly become better when it gets real when it gets intense you're not you're going to fall to what you're capable of yeah. what you know so same thing happens in the fire service same thing happens in the military and firefights or whatever you 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 have to have which to me goes back to this core principle of training your training has to be intense and has to be uh, job specific and related to what you're doing, um, and again, has to be uh, has to be stressful because you're inoculating yourself against that stress so that when it happens, you it's not the first time you're seeing it. You've been there before. You felt the kimura. You know what that feels like. You're not going to walk into that by accident because you know, right? Going into it. So, all right. So let's let's do some situationals. So you're at the firehouse chilling, and you get a call. Are you already dressing up on your in your gear? Despite what the call is, or because you, you guys wear the, the the big what are those the big jacket turnouts big, and all that stuff yeah, yeah so bunker you, gear turnouts yeah. so is that are you like walking around the firehouse with that stuff on no no or you put them no on when you get I'm usually in the firehouse in you know in board shorts and pink bunny slippers <laughs> <laughs> so you get a call and then depending on the call do you know what you're putting on or do you put those on despite so no it depends on the depends on the nature of the call so okay. if we get a call for uh let's just say it's a chest pain a medical call then i'm i'm usually in you know steel toe boots uh, uh blue pants blue t-shirt right that kind of outfit and um and my turnout gear sits on the truck with me okay and uh um, but if it comes in as a fire call um, I usually have my gear setting next to the truck. So if a, a fire call comes in, I jump into my pants, throw my coat on, and get on the truck. And that takes five seconds, ten seconds. Um, and, you know, it sounds silly, but you lay it out in the exact same way. So whenever you, whenever your gear's there, it's laid out right. identical every single time right. um, so that you can just throw it on. So the, the, the oxygen tanks and all that stuff, that's all on the truck? Yep. So those are mounted in cabinets. And so we pull when you pull up on the, on the fire ground, we jump off, look at the fire, trying to make an assessment as we run back, grab our packs, throw the air pack on, and then proceed to, you know, do whatever you need to do, pull the hose, stretch a lot, you know, whatever, whatever the job is that you need to do at that point. Hmm. Grab your equipment and go. Can you drive the truck? 
I can't. I, I was a, I was an engineer. I, had to ask. For, I was a, uh, an engineer for a bunch of years. Okay. Yeah. So let's go a little deeper dive. So do you remember the first time you've had to go into a house? Um, I, I don't remember the first time, but I remember one of the first times. And, um, and the reason is quite remarkable. Um, the, uh, the house was on, like the whole front room was on fire, stem to stern. Everything was on fire. At least it appeared that way. And I ran up to the front door and, and uh, there was another firefighter standing there holding a hose line, but he didn't have a helmet on. And he was from a, a different agency. So it was kind of remarkable. Hmm. And so I said, you have no helmet. And he looks at me and he, and he like realized, he suddenly realized, oh crap, I don't have a helmet. So he handed me the hose line, which in our culture is like, you don't give up your tool, right? Like that's you, you don't give away your tool. Really? And he like, oh, no helmet. So he hands me the hose line and then I proceed to go in and start putting out this fire. And uh, um, I, I get about seven, eight feet in and something hooks up my feet and I immediately fall down. And I get, I scramble back up and, you know, we put out the fire and, uh, afterwards as we're overhauling and mucking out the place, I go back to where I fell and there was a transmission on the living room floor. Like, like the, a car the, transmission? Uh-huh. Like the, the whole bell housing, <laughs> the whole giant bell housing. So that's when I was like, this job is, is going to be really interesting. That's hilarious. Yeah. I'm like, no wonder the place was on fire. The freaking transmission in the living room. Like, was it like dressed up like a nice like center table or was it just like a guy was working well, on it and he just left it? <laughs> I, I didn't investigate that far, but I'm pretty sure it was just like brought into the house for some dumb reason and left. So I guess that brings up my next question. After everything is put out in a fire situation, mm -hmm. do you like walk the house and make sure nothing else is going to light up again? Yeah. Yes and no. So we, we um, do as little damage as possible. However, we do, we do open the house up a little bit and make sure that there's no smoldering, make sure there's no hot spots or whatever to make sure it's all the way out before we leave because one of the uh, one of the marks of shame for firefighters to get a rekindle when the house That's lights hilarious. back up so I mean, not at the time but it happens. after the fact yeah it happens though from time to time you know like see you get uh, you know uh, one of those stormy nights and it's high winds or something like that and it just catches a little ember and it torches it you know the wind's blowing on it and it lights it back up and you know you, the place can be pretty wet and wow. um, so we do everything our, we do everything we can to, to make sure that that's not going to happen but it does from time to time. Interesting. So, do you remember the first time, like, you had to pull somebody out? Um, you know what's interesting is I've only had one fire when I've pulled a live human being out of a fire. Really? Mm -hmm. And it was before I became a firefighter. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to hear that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you can't just leave it open. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's, it's, it's weird to me because it, it um, when I look back on it, it, it's one of those moments when I realize this, this is a bit of a calling for me, right, in one way. So I was uh, 17, and um, it was Christmas Eve, and a buddy and I were out for a run. And uh, we were, you know, football season had ended. It was our senior year, and we're like, oh, we're going to go for a uh, you know, get ready for track season. So we're out running and uh, we're running up this hill. And um, as we, as we crest the, the top of the hill, the, the road that we're on tees into another street. Okay. And we hear an explosion and we hear glass and explosion. And um, we immediately like, take off in the direction of the, of the sound that we heard. <laughs> and as we kind of get a, I don't know, 
25 yards further, we see this house at the end of the street and fire blowing out of the second story window. And um, so we run down, we run, we both split and go different directions. We're pounding on doors and we're in fire, fire, there's a fire. And we arrive at the front of the house at the same time. And there's a, I think he was about seven year old boy standing there looking up at the fire and uh, grab him and by the shoulders and I go, is there anybody in the house? And he says, yeah, my dad's in the house. So we, um, my friend Nick and I, run down the side of the house underneath where the fire is and go down by the side of the house and go into the backyard. I don't know why we didn't go to the front door. I, I don't know recall if it was locked or if we didn't go to it or whatever, but we go down the side of the house and go in the back patio. And there's a pool fence there. We hop this pool fence and make our way into the back of the, into the kitchen. And the house is full of smoke on the downstairs, like a light haze throughout the whole downstairs. And there's a smoke detector going off and the TV's on and all the lights are on downstairs. And um, we immediately start screaming, hey, is there anybody in the house or anybody here? And we're not getting any feedback. And you could hear the fire, you know, crackling and roaring uh, upstairs. So we make our way around the downstairs and uh, there's like a central staircase that went up in the middle. And we arrive at the bottom of the staircase and I go about three steps up and my head hits about floor level and the heat was incredibly oppressive, right? I, Knowing what I know now, uh, I was a damn fool to be in there, um, but I didn't know any better. So I come back down the stairs and my friend Nick had showed up and he hands me a wet towel. And we're, you know, the whole time we're screaming, is there anybody in here, anybody in here? I hand, he hands me the wet towel, I put it over my mouth and I try to go back up the stairs and it's not gonna happen. I get turned around by the heat. So we go back downstairs and, and we start to head out, back out the way that we came in. And um, Nick runs out the door and I stop at the sliding glass door on my way out and I, I see a door out of the corner of my eye that I hadn't, I hadn't checked, and I felt somewhat compelled to, to go back and check that door. Right. So I turn and go back, and I open it up, and it's like a guest bathroom. And there's a, a tub-shower combo, and then like the, a little sink, and then the toilet is kind of in a, a, a little inset behind the shower. So I can't see the, I can just sort of see the front rim of the toilet, but I'm looking for an adult. So I'm like, had there been an adult there, I probably would have seen him. But I scream into this little bathroom, this was about you know six by 10 feet, is there anybody in there? And no response, but I feel, uh, compelled to go all the way in. So I go all the way in and I look behind the, look at the toilet and there was a, a three-year-old girl curled up behind the toilet. So I grabbed her and stuffed her my arm, under my arm like a football and ran out the back door, the sliding glass door and hopped the full fence in one fell, like I have no idea how I did any of this, but I hopped the fence in one fell swoop with her under my arm and uh, run back out. Now the whole neighborhood's out in the front yard. So I dropped the girl down next to her brother and some neighbors stand there, they grab her and I, Nick and I run back in. And we do one more lap of the downstairs and, uh, and the front door comes blasting open and this giant fireman stands there and he goes, what the fuck are you doing in here? Get out. <laughs> so I'm like, right, we should probably leave. So I run out the front door while he runs in with the hose and they go and do their business and whatever. I have no recollection of anything past that uh, with the house fire. But uh, we go out to the street and there's you know, a reporter from some local paper or whatever. And, and um, you know, they talked to us about what we did, et cetera. And um, we didn't find out until later on that the next day uh, when the paper came out that the dad was trapped in the bathroom upstairs uh. and died of smoke inhalation. And the mom was at, a, she was doing some last minute you know, Christmas shopping or whatever. 
Ooh, it's on Christmas time. It's Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve. The horrible, horrible deal. And so we show up after Christmas break, and everybody's like, "Oh, you, Nick, you guys are heroes." And and I was like, mm, yeah, "Well, yeah, I guess we are. Like, that's really cool. You know, we did this thing." And um, you know, and I went about my life and didn't think much about it. And um, every Christmas for the next like 15 years, I got a Christmas card from uh, the mom thanking me for saving her daughter. And it wasn't until years later that I re- it began reflecting on this event and, and what it really meant in my life. And it dawned on me that, you know, I didn't rescue that girl. Right? She was in that bathroom. She was totally safe where she was. Those firefighters were there literally minutes after we were there. There was no hazard to that little girl. But the, the, what the mother recognized was the willingness of somebody to engage to help her family. And that's when I began to understand how important service is and how important it is that we give of ourselves to the people in our community to help them out. And, um, you know, I, I, that was the lesson for me in that event was if you are willing to put yourself out there, you can help people out. Even if they're really not that, you know, they think they're in harm's way. You are the professional, you know better, right? But you're going to go in there and you're going to, you're going to lift them up. You're going to help them out, whatever way that is. And, uh, you know, it's a, you know, it was a, a very difficult lesson to learn, um, and it took me a long time to truly understand it. And uh, you know, I, I still feel horrible that 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 the father in that family uh, passed away. Um, you know, and I think about those kids all the time and and what their lives must have been like after the fact. Um, but I hope that they take solace in the fact that two teenagers were wanted to help them, and you know, did something to try to impact it to make a difference in their lives you know and uh, I think about that a lot when I think about what I'm doing as a firefighter now why I why I'm in this career and and can I make a difference and and every level that I'm at in the organization as I do different jobs or move up the chain of command can I still have an impact on the community um, and and lift people up when they're having a tough time Um, and the answer is yeah absolutely absolutely you know, right now I work in our in a training section. Well, what can I do as a as a training guy? I can make sure that our guys have the the knowledge, skills, and abilities to be effective to go out in the field and help people out when they when they need it. And you know, we do that because because human beings, right? You know? Right. And at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to is the human the human connection we have to all these people. And you jump on the freeway and we're hurtling past each other at a thousand miles an hour, you know, and and rarely cognizant of the consequences of, of anything that takes place. But we need to be mindful of the fact that uh, we have a responsibility to the, the other people on this planet surrounding us, and that we can have tremendous impact um, on their daily lives, and uh, if we're just willing to engage in a little in in a meaningful way. In telling that story, do you still feel like you hold a little bit of burden for not going upstairs? No, because I know it would have killed me. Like, I know that, would, that wouldn't have done any good to do that. I was going to say, um, if you couldn't go upstairs, it would just blaze because of the heat. I mean, I can't imagine you breathing up there because smoke travels up, right? Yeah. Yeah. When that, well, and as it builds pressure, it pushes down, right? So it fills the upstairs, and then it's going to slowly work its way down, which is why downstairs was a light haze. You know, that smoke was beginning to work its way down. Um, yeah, I know I, you know, do I feel like, I, I know I couldn't have done anything different. Um, and, uh, you know, that I'm glad I was able to, to help that family out in some way to make them feel like at least somebody tried something. Mm-hmm. Because I recognize that, it, you know, now knowing what I know today, that that was not a survivable situation for 
a would-be rescuer like me, you know, going in there was not anything I was going to do. And that dad was probably passed at that point already. Yeah. You know. Have you ever been in a situation where you've lost somebody? Like then now being a firefighter? Yeah. Is... Because I could see how guys would get kind of PTSD mm-hmm. from, from situations like that. It's a rough thing yeah. to go through, especially mm-hmm. when you're committing to a job where you are really putting your life on the line, right? And, and I could see how really determined people could, could see that as a failure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there something in place, like a, a program or like a, a time off or... Oh, yeah, um, Absolutely. For, for guys that need it? Yeah. So guys or girls that need I it? I think back in the day there was a, you know, there was this suffer in silence kind of attitude. Like you just suck it up and, you know, everybody's going through it. It's all hard. Everybody gets it. It's hard. But the 50s mentality, right? Like that old mentality right. of guys just kind of pushing through. Right. Don't and talk I, think about your feelings. I think that's partly because A, it was cultural and, and there wasn't systems in place, right? Now we have uh, programs in place where we can refer guys to to go talk to somebody. And, you know, part of it is the network on the truck, you know, as a, you know, as a team, you look at one another and you go, Hey, are you okay? You know, like, um, you know, I had a, a pediatric code and, um, you know, one of the kids on the truck is, I say kids, one of the young, one of the younger guys on the truck is, you know, had a u- new family. Mm. And so for him, it was particularly close to home. And so, you know, pull him aside. Hey, that was a rough call, man. How are you feeling about that? You know, and, and just gauge how they're processing it. We touch base with each other make sure, you know, like this is that that's a huge part of it is that personal connection. Um, but there are resources available to us if we, you know, need a critical incident, stress debrief, or if you just need, you know, individual person needs to go and talk to somebody or whatever. Those are, those resources are available. Do you ever get in situations or you've seen situations where somebody goes through something and then now there's hesitation when there's another call? Um, you know what? I can't say that I've personally seen that, but I can imagine that. I can imagine it, but it, I can't say that I've seen it. Are there any options for guys like that? I mean, if they can work out whatever they got to work out? You know, I think so. I mean, it's, you know, I think you can, you can, there's times we pull people off of a truck, you send them to go get treatment, you get help or whatever. Um, and then depends on how that goes, right? Like, you know, depends on what, the level of dysfunction we're talking about. Right. right? So. All right, so I'll change the topic a little bit because now I have another random question because I caught myself <laughs> saying guys a lot and I'm like, there's got to be so sexist. I know, right? Can't. So is there, there's got to be female firefighters. There's a lot of them. Okay. So what do you, what, just estimate, what is the percentage, male or female? Oof. Um, just a random guess. Two, one to 2%. Oh, wow. So it's really small. Small. Is that a field that more and more women are getting into or you feel like it's still kind of staying there? No, it's, that's an interesting question. I think there's a lot of um, interest and um, I couldn't put a number on that. And, you know, we, we see a lot of active recruitment of women. Um, you know, it, 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 I think still it's still just not that job that a lot of gals really want to do. Um, but there is interest. You know, there's a pop portion of our population that's really into it. And there's some great f- firefighters out there that are gals. Um, you know, the, uh, it's funny, you know, back in the day, uh, you know, when I first started getting interested in the job, you know, my buddy Ken, he's like, Oh, you'll be a great fireman. And, um, you know, today we don't call them firemen, we call them firefighters. And um, mm, that sort of speaks okay. to the evolution of the culture. You know, yeah. the, the, the culture has changed. You know, we don't, 
we recognize that you know a firefighter can be any gender and um and it, and frankly it strengthens us to have that diversity in our composition you know black white you know chicano female male gay lesbian whatever like that diversity is huge for us and is really an important part of us being um integrated into this community that we serve because we serve a diverse diverse community so we should reflect that right you know my only metric personally is you can do the job i was going to say is there a variable to that where where the physicality is such a big portion of it that you wonder whether or not like certain women can do it um, that's not to say well, I will say th- I will say this. You, you no, sexist I'll, I'll beast. Tread, tread lightly. <laughs> I will say this. There are there are tiny there are some tiny women and right, there's some tiny point. tiny men on the job. Okay. And um, so my again my only requirement is you know me personally right like I have any sway here. But what I say is if you can do the job, I don't care. I'm going to be critical of you if you don't perform, um, regardless. So I saw one of our firefighters, this teeny little gal. She's a, an engineer. She drives a fire truck, and she had to get a ladder out. She like climbed up the side of this truck and hoisted this ladder out and then climbed back down and like, like she had a whole technique for getting this ladder out that I've never seen anyone else use. Now I could walk up to the back of the truck and pull it out with my hands over my head. She physically is, you know, a foot and a half shorter than me. She can't do that. So she came up with a technique and she was able to make it happen okay. in a different way. So, so to discount someone just because they don't have the same stature or the same robust physicality. Now, do I expect a hundred pound gal to pull me out of a burning building? No, but we know from research um, and and repeated uh, studies that we've done that a single firefighter is not going to pull a, another single firefighter of a building by themselves. It just doesn't happen. Okay. There's too many obstacles. There's too many variables that take place. If if somebody is truly dead weight, it's going to take uh, a huge cadre of people to get them out of a building. It's just the sense. reality of it. So so leverage your leverage your resources and your teammates versus trying to do it all yourself. Makes sense. I had to ask. No, so, it's reasonable. I guess that brings up another question. Does the dynamic change a bit in a firehouse if you have commingling? Yeah, it does a little bit. A little bit? Yeah. Does it complicate and things if people start dating? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's think, got to, right? Yeah. And you see, you know, you see that in... So I have this military mindset, which is you don't you don't fraternize with the troops. Right. right? Like, and... You know, you don't you don't date your sister. And um, in my mind, when if you have a uh, female firefighter on your truck, she's your sister. You know, she's not she's off the table for dating. Um, you know, if you want to go work somewhere else, then that's fine. But you don't bring that into the into the house. Um, that being said, it does happen, and it it can be contentious because if it doesn't work out, that's a problem. Um, because you can't just can you just ask for a transfer? Uh, well, there's a lot of variables that go into that, but yeah, you can transfer. You can get transferred to another spot if you need to, but there's variables. But that, you know, that's just one of those things where, you know, relationships are hard as it is. Yeah. And you bring that into your, into this dynamic where there's all these other people involved and, you know, in a firehouse, for example, it's complicated. Um, so it's not, not advisable in my opinion, in my <laughs> humble opinion. And I could just see that being a variable. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. It's tricky. Well, you know, uh, there's all kinds of tall tales that you, know, you hear people talk about and that things that happen in the firehouse and uh, none of which are uh, within the city ordinances. <laughs> so it shouldn't be happening. So one thing I, I noticed with, um, um, well, I guess a lot of different, uh, this type of service industries, like, the, you know, you guys are very close. You spend a lot of time together. You rely on each other for your lives, essentially, yeah. at times. Do you guys get together a lot? Like families, your families get together and mm-hmm. you, your family's close? Some crews more so than others. Yeah, absolutely. But that's one, that's one of the things in the, in the firehouse culture is 
uh, is building that time together and going fishing and going hunting together and having barbecues and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it depends on the crew. When I was, uh, young in my career, I had a crew where all had kids at the same age and, mm. you know, so we got together a lot, um, at the firehouse and out of the firehouse, we had all kinds of fun activities. Um, and then, you know, d- over the years I've had different crews with different compositions and it's a little bit, you know, different cause you, you know, one guy will have young kids, one guy will have no kids and one guy has, you know, teenagers. So it's a very different dynamic. So you don't spend as much time together off duty necessarily cause you're at different places in your life. Um, so those are different dynamics that affect that. Um, but yeah, but guys are, you know, definitely invested in one another. You know, I pulled up uh, to the station that, and my truck was acting up. And before I could say anything, a fleet, of, you know, like four guys had their head under my hood and were helping me fix my truck. That's hilarious. You know, so those are the, you know, those bonds happen sometimes just in the backyard of the station, you know, whether you're doing it off duty or not. So you, so you talked about like having a barbecue at the fire station or whatever. So I'm assuming you guys are off duty coming over to have some fun. No, I meant like there's two different ways. So sometimes you'll have activities at the firehouse. So, Hey, we're all on duty on Thanksgiving. So we'll bring the families down and we'll do a big shindig at the station. Um, which often, get a which call often gets interrupted. Okay. If you get a call, but I can imagine for Thanksgiving people it's a, frying turkeys and yeah, yeah all that crazy it's stuff. some stations, it's more easy to make that happen than others. Um, but yeah, my wife got to the point where she's like, I'm not coming down to the fire station because you're never there. Like, I'll come down and visit, but then you guys leave. So what's the point? And they just um, hang around while you guys go do the call right. and come back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that, you know, those dynamics change sometimes. But guys will do barbecues off-duty too. Like, hey, we're going to do 4th of July and we'll all get together and have a barbecue off-duty somewhere. And, you know, so that those kind of interactions and family activities take place away from the firehouse for sure, as much as they do at the firehouse. But... You know, like guys will go hunting trips together. Like some guys have annual, uh, annual hiking trips they do together, and you know they have like a station reunion, mm-hmm. and you know they do like the Grand Canyon or do some kind of hike like that where they all get together and do a thing. And sometimes it's just the guys and gals, right, just right. The, just the fire, just the firefighters, <laughs> the and the, fam- right. the families aren't even part of it. You know, it's just a team building deal. What is is there room for growth? Like if you're a firefighter, is there another level and another level oh, absolutely. For, for, for job? Absolutely. Growth? So the basic, the basic, uh, pattern, I guess you could say would be, you know, you come in as a, as a BLS firefighter, as an EMT firefighter, a lot of guys will become a paramedic. Um, that's one path you can take. And, um, and then oftentimes guys will become, they'll either promote to an engineer and become a chauffeur and driver, right. Or they'll, um, and then from there you can either become a captain or you go from firefighter to captain. So there's two paths you can take. Hmm. And then on a fire truck, those are your, that's your basic progression. And it, you know, it takes people between 10 and 15 years to kind of get to that place in their career where they become a captain. Um, and then, uh, outside of that, you know, once you've become a captain, there's opportunities to become a, a chief officer or what have you and promote beyond the fire station into a more supervisory role, more management type role where you're managing a, an area, a, a section of the department, or managing a, uh, a a region of the department, a battalion, they call it, so which is like six to eight station type setup, that kind of composition. So we talked about how competitive it is just to be a firefighter. I would assume mm-hmm. it'd be, it's even more competitive to get to that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it like is. it's very few positions of those ever available. Well, and again, there's attrition, and there's, there's always some spots that are make themselves available, but... You're right. The position of captain is one of the more, uh, more coveted achievements in, in a firefighter's career if they choose to promote. And so it's, you know, you've got, you know, 
a lot of folks that are towing the line to get in that process. So it's very, very competitive. So again, uh, it goes back to kind of that knowing yourself, right? Why are you doing this? And, and what's, what's in it for the organization as well as yourself? You know, what are you bringing to the table? What things have you done in your career to develop yourself to that level uh, where you are providing leadership and, um, and, uh, and being able to craft the, the uh, firefighters are going to come behind you. You know, what skills do you bring to the table to, to do that? Um, and are you doing that? Are you providing leadership at your current level? in any way, shape or form, you know, cause leadership isn't one of those things that just the minute you put a new badge on somebody, suddenly they're a leader. It's something much, much more, um, intrinsic to people than that. It, it takes time to develop it and to practice it and to execute it. And, and over years of time, you don't just pin a badge on someone and say, poof, you're a leader. It just doesn't work like that. Right. In my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, like a career for a firefighter, how many years most people put in on average? Well, it's interesting is the you know firefighters usually stick around for you know twenty five plus years, so um, you know the you know in in public safety in general it's like a twenty year type deal and guys retire nowadays you know firefighters usually stick around twenty five thirty years, and that's I mean after twenty five thirty years like you said is that like retirement like yeah that, they you, you usually get a pension, yeah, usually they get the, take a pension and retire yeah. and off they go okay. So I know you touched upon this before a little bit, and now I'm kind of curious. You mentioned that a lot of guys are suffering from um, the smoke inhalation, a lot of the oh, little cancer things. That, yeah. yeah. So that's the prevalent thing for these guys, for a lot of guys? It is becoming more and more prevalent over the years. Like we're finding more and more cases of it connected to job-related uh, cancer. So different types of cancers manifesting across the fire service and recognizing that it's all service related. So I, I don't have any data or numbers that I could share with you, but I just know that it's, it has, my awareness of it has increased over the last 10 years significantly. And we're hearing, um, about service related cancer across the nation. So, um, so we, we know it's becoming more and more problematic for, for the fire service in general and it has it has a lot to do with a shift in the type of carcinogens and um and the rates of exposure so we you know we are taking steps to you know like for example after a fire instead of immediately the fires we, we put the fire out flame goes away all right smoke's beginning to dissipate all right take your gear off right now we're going to go in and muck it out well we what does really, that mean what does uh, muck it out mean? well we go out and start uh sorry that's jargon um, we go in and start we call it overhauling so we start trying to save people's property and preserve what's like now we got the fire out we're gonna try and preserve what's left prevent water damage things like that so we're gonna scoop out uh scoop out drywall and and uh and um insulation that's fallen down stuff like that we take that out of the structure mop out mop up as much water things like that well you go oh, in wow. there and all that product of combustion is still releasing vapors and and gases into the air well you can't see it um, but we used to, you know, so we used to assume like, yeah, there's nothing. You can't see anything fires out. We're good. So guys would put on a particulate mask, which is, does nothing besides keep dust out of your face. Right. And, um, and go back in and start mucking it out or well, realizing now that there's still dangerous vapors being released that are carcinogenic. And I think it's, I say that carcinogenic, something <laughs> like that cancer causing. And, um, so now guys are wearing their, their SCBA. So put their SCBA back on, right? Other thing we're doing is like your gear, uh, your, your turnout code and pants and all that gets saturated with these products of combustion. And, um, and when you go back into another fire, they just leach into your skin or you wear them to go do a workout. Like, uh, we do, sometimes we'll do these job related workouts where you're wearing all your gear and 
that as your body heats up and your pores open up and this gear is saturated with this stuff, it saturates, it leaches back into your skin, into your armpits, your groin, et cetera. So now we're saying, okay, hey, let's, the minute you have a fire, we you have two sets of gear. You know, that set goes to laundry, your other set goes on the truck, right? So we try to launder that stuff as, as quickly as possible to reduce exposure. Um, little things too, like you bring it into the cab. There'd be times I'd open up the cab uh, the next day after guys had a fire. I open up the cab and I'm like, whoa, giant hit in the face with a big, you know, uh, smell of, of combustion, gases, etc. And so I'm like, um, so now we're like, take that gear, put it in the back compartment so that you're not talking, you know, uh, uh, contaminating the environment that you're riding around in all day. So things like that, we're trying to take measures to reduce the effects of all these carcinogens. Um, you know, there are some companies have come out with these like baby wipe things that you wipe on your skin to reduce the, you know, the saturation of your skin as it's sitting on your skin, et cetera. So until you can get back to the station to do like a full shower and decon and stuff like that. So how protective are the masks? I mean, are they pretty effective? Um, as far as respira- respiratory protection, yeah, incredibly effective. Like that's the that is the gold standard as far as respiratory protection. It it keeps the you know it keeps it is one hundred percent sealant. Now you could crack it and get some in and you know whatever. Or if you're not wearing it, that's a problem. Right, right, so, right, right. You know, so part of the problem is just compliance because it's uncomfortable. So it's a, you know it's a hundred thousand degrees out here in the summertime and oh, you've yeah. just been in there busting your hump and you're gonna put that gear back on and go in there and work. You're gonna it's it's hard. So. You know, we're trying to, you know, do things with work cycles, bring other crews in to help with work cycles and, you know, to reduce the guys' desire to pull that stuff off, right? Bring a fresh crew in, let them work for a while, let the other crew rehabilitate, and then we'll bring them back in, you know, different types of modifications to work cycle to help people um, stay protected as much as possible, reduce their exposure if you can. It's a challenge. Hmm. I could see that. I mean, is it... You're right. I mean, it's one of those situations where if you think you can't see something, it, it's not deadly, but you never right. know. That's you right. You never know. I mean, that's one thing with, um, um, they say you should never, um, when working, I think, with aluminum is one of the big ones. It's like, mm. it, it releases a lot of toxic stuff that you can't be breathing in. Right. So a lot of guys, I think, are tinkering with that right now, because I think right now there's a big shift in the paradigm, and people are wanting to do more things with their hands. So you see more and more mm. people wanting to do hobby type hobby stuff. Type stuff, where they're doing mm. like, like um, making knives and, mm. and and casting things and aluminum so easy to get they're yeah. using it that or whatever um, but I think don't people don't realize how toxic they can be right. um, do you get a lot of like calls for like people deep frying turkeys <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that happens every season, right? Somebody yeah. does something that blows up a turkey and catches their carport on fire or whatever. There's always something. I got a buddy of mine who does that every year. I'm like, you make it all right? You make it through? <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you something. Now it's escaping me. Um, has, and I know this is kind of a loaded question, but has, as you guys are kind of, have you ever had any issues, I suppose, with, with firefighters? getting in trouble because they're in the house and maybe valuables go missing or accusations of that happening. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I say I'm sure I, I am sure I know. Okay. Yeah. Things like that happen, you know, and it's it, that, um, you know, you have to remember that the firefighters, while, you know, we like to think of them as, you know, very noble servants, um, have problems just like anybody else. Right. And, um, support their people. Yeah, they're human beings, and there's there's different stresses on them, or whatever. I know, like we have guys who get injured and end up, you know, with with uh, substance abuse issues and things like that, and we have guys who lose their sense of moral compass, and uh, you know, 
we try to guard that because man, our our number one uh, our number one thing is to trust the public. Like right. we, you know, you let us into your homes and we come in there and you know walk in when you're in in dire straits. We you need to trust us, right? We need you to trust us, and so we we do everything we can to protect that. So when we get guys who are uh, violating that trust, they don't last long in the fire service. They usually get excised right out. And um, um, so sadly, you know, over the course of my career, I've seen plenty of guys uh, end their careers short because they had a breach of integrity and they couldn't help themselves. And how, do you, how do you prove that? Well, it's usually, I mean, usually it's criminal activity that's somehow investigated and figured out. I mean, I, and be frank, I don't even know like what the details are for these guys' uh, mistakes or whatever, but we know that they've made errors and gotten caught and proven to be guilty for whatever reason, either admitted to it or, or were caught red-handed or whatever. Um, and, you know, careers have been ended because of it. It's, un, it's unfortunate, but, you know, you have to, it's a, we have the public's trust in our hands and we got to honor that and preserve it. Which, I mean, you guys, for the most part, have the best record. You, know, you guys compare to police officers. Like, people love you guys and compare to police officers. Well, that's true. Because every time we're there, it's usually there to help. We're not there to right. ask questions. Yeah, but <laughs> Which wanted makes to get uncomfortable. I've been talking to one of the guys um, at the gym about doing it because he's a police officer. So mm-hmm. I wanted to, wanted to talk to him about it. Um, I think he's, he's, he's thinking, thinking about it. Thinking about it. Because I think there's a lot of people that look at police officers and they don't look at them as people and they're people too you know yeah. they're dealing with stressors they've got a rough yeah. job they've got yeah. a rough job nobody kind of wants to see a police officer unless you're in trouble right and so people tend to have bad opinions of them so i think it's good for somebody to speak on how difficult the job really is yeah no i would submit to you that all the guys i've talked to i i get it it's incredibly demanding yeah. and even when people call for your help a lot of times you show up and now you're the bad guy yeah. even though they called you it's you know and i say that like i have a horse now but i've seen it with the guys around us like they'll get these calls to go service and they show up and they're you know well i'm gonna arrest your husband because he hit you well i don't want to press charges mm. what yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah and so now they're the bad guy and um you know you're dealing with human beings and and a lot of you know in criminal situations it can get ugly for these poor guys yeah and uh i do not i do not envy uh my brothers in blue it's a hard job um, all right, so I should probably let you go because we've been at it for over two hours now. Dang. So I, I have to ask this dumb a lot question. To talk about. I know I still have more questions, but we'll have to do another one at some point. I have a dumb question. All right. Has there been a firefighter calendar? Is there firefighter calendars? There, there are <laughs> none. I, I had I, to ask it. There are none in uh, our neck of the woods that I'm aware of. That's hilarious. That's a real thing. I thought that was just like a TV thing. Oh no! Like uh, FDN, raise money or whatever. I would say FDNY and San Francisco Fire. Definitely put them out uh, every year. So That's if you want, I'll hook you up if you want one. No, I was just curious. But is it, I mean, is that a fundraising thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's done for fundraising. This is just a perfect excuse why you should stay in shape. There you right? go. It might get a chance is, to be in the calendar. See, this is how you you propose this to your higher ups. You're like, look, they need to stay we need in to shape, raise so money. We need to raise therefore, money. Therefore, <laughs> <laughs> we need to be calendar ready at all times. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, what's funny is some departments have larger percentage of women too, and there's there's a few female firefighter calendars out there. Wow, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. Yeah, talk about sexist. Can you believe that? <laughs> Jeez, which is a total double standard, by the way, because right. nobody batted an eye when there's a dude firefighter calendar, right? But there's a female firefighter. I'm calendar. sure it's a hot top, hot seller. I imagine. I will not be googling that later for informational purposes <laughs> only for this podcast. Um, that's it, buddy. I guess I leave you at this because I'm taking up a lot of time today. Is there anything you want to talk about, plug or, or talk? You know, 
push out there? No, not at the moment. Anything to aspire? I know you've, I know you've been uh, pushing me to start a podcast. And I'm, I've been pushing you. And I am uh, uh, on the cusp of making that happen. So okay. as soon as I make it happen, I'll let you know and well, I'll you bring can it up. share that I'll with share it. whoever. Um, anything for guys that are like looking to go into this field and how to break into it? Because like you said, there's a big big competitive field there's yeah there absolutely i would say this there's there is an idea that it's um that you have to know somebody on the inside and and on one hand that's a little bit true um it's not because you need someone to pull you through the process as much as you need someone to inform you of the process and help you understand the agency that you're trying to get hired with and help you understand how to present yourself uh to that to that agency so as far as preparation goes, it's important to make relationships with people who work in those agencies and ask some, uh, you know, direct questions about how best to prepare yourself um, and how best to uh, understand their agency and, and what their expectations are for their firefighters coming in. So if you understand those things, your, your chance of getting hired are, are significantly better. So if you don't know anybody, reach out to your reach out to uh, your local fire station and introduce yourself, tell them what you're all about and that you're interested in their job. And for guys that are, are still guys or gals that are still thinking about it. Is there like ride along opportunities where you can kind of go and yeah, maybe not every, every agency is a little bit different, okay. but that's what I'm saying. If you, you reach out to the local, your local station and tell those guys what you're interested in, if there's anybody that, that you could speak to and they'll connect you with somebody hmm. who can kind of start, start you down that right pipeline. And, um, you know, the whole, the idea of doing a ride along is great because it gives you some exposure to what the job is like and, and helps you, uh, see if it's truly something you're interested in. Uh, you might go on a ride along and be like, yeah, this is not, not my, <laughs> this is not my jam. Right. Um, but you know, I, I went on one ride along and was immediately hooked and I'm like, oh no, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Exactly what I want. And that's been, you know, 20 something years later, here I am. So. Seems like a good option. Yeah. All right, buddy. Any, any last words? Anything else you want to uh, tell people? No, I appreciate your taking the time to chat with me. It's Thank fun. you for doing this. My pleasure, buddy. If, uh, if we get any response, I'll, I'll ask. Maybe we'll do this in the future again. Yeah, you bet. Sounds good. All right, buddy. Yo, how good was that podcast, huh? It's pretty good. Um, once again, I appreciate Rain for um, doing it. I mean, it, it was a great podcast, and I think ultimately, like, we got onto some topics that he was quite honest about, but also, you know, some things that some people wouldn't be willing to admit. Um, I think in the beginning, too, I also caught myself just, this is one of my earlier podcasts, so I, I just was super self-conscious of my of my kind of the, the way I was phrasing things and, and my ums really kind of started bothering me. But long story short, um, there it is again, freaking A. Anyways, so either way, it was a pretty good podcast. And this podcast also, like I mentioned a million times now, was recorded so long ago that at the end, I asked him if he had anything going on that he wanted to plug and he didn't have anything. And he mentioned that I had talked to him about doing a podcast. Well, guess what? Guess what? In that time, he's gotten one, and he's like twenty-one episodes in. So he he has surpassed this podcast in uploads 
in a relatively short amount of time. So go follow him. If you, I'll have links to everything down below. So wherever you're listening to this, either YouTube or iTunes or whatever, Podbean or Stitcher, whatever, there'll be links or links below. But if you if you want to know his podcast name right now, so you can just go search it, it's Fireground Fitness Podcast. So, and if you want to follow him on Instagram, it's actually the same thing. So it's Fireground Fitness and uh, you'll see a picture of him in his uh, in his full firefighter gear on. Um, but once again, I mean, once again, it's awesome, awesome, and I'm super happy with this podcast. Um, super happy with the, the the content and also like the the honesty. Also, before I forget about this too, it's like I want to apologize because there's there's some pieces of it that were kind of noisy. That was primarily because we were inside of a coffee shop, and you know you could hear blenders and people talking in the background so that's no way i can uh i can really kind of get around that but also in the beginning you could tell how how i was so into the intricacies of just his military stuff like i i get i get deep into the little details like size of the cannon shells and where the cannon shells are going it's just it's just funny it's just funny to kind of hear myself because from an outside world people are probably who cares but i care i like that nerdy shit i like knowing stuff like that for some reason i am curious about that stuff i think sometimes when you're able to get into the the the, the nitty-gritty of things you're able to really get a good idea of like experiences you're able to have a more vivid picture of that person's experience in that situation and once again as i mentioned a million times like these are experiences you and i will likely not have i mean i'll I'll never shoot a tank as far as i know unless something crazy happens i'll never be loading a tank shell and shooting it or whatnot so getting those experiences from somebody else who's lived through that is is unique in itself so um what else did i want to say so yeah ultimately thanks against the rain um his social media and his link to his podcast if i can figure out how to do that will be down below but either way fireground fitness follow him and listen to his podcast Um, additionally so i kind of teased in the beginning of this episode about what's kind of going on with this podcast moving forward i think the more i think about 2020 and the way that's gonna it's gonna progress in my mind things are just going to be so complicated where it's going to be harder for me to find content for this podcast. And so one of two things are going to be happening in my mind. One, I might try to roll it into have all my podcasts in one. So find a way to have everything released as like a life generalist release and have both podcasts released from one versus having two different podcasts, two different channels. And then one of which is just uploaded on a very rare basis um, or what I'm, i also contend with doing is is i often get in these weird mindsets where i'm ranty or want to talk about a specific topic and they could be very short impromptu uploads and i've talked about doing that a million times now it's just like i said this year has been a little hectic but maybe that's something i'll tinker with as well so there will be a format change there will be a a change of some sort when it comes to both podcasts and the way they function um there's reasons why i originally didn't have it set up the way i was describing but now i'm thinking of switching it that way we will see and and while i would normally say just listen to my instagram follow my instagram to see what's going on and where the changes are going to be um that might change as well so long story short just keep keep you know stay tuned if you're enjoying this if you like this content 
keep listening to it because things will change. And so I'll be updating everybody on every way to which way possible as things progress. So anyways, but that's just kind of like my update because I haven't given you guys one of these in a long time. So that's it, ladies and gents. I think this was already a long enough podcast. I didn't want to hold you guys for three hours. So ultimately, once again, thank you guys for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it and, you know, maybe learned something. Maybe kind of took an experience. Somebody maybe took somebody's life experiences a bit and kind of digested those a bit and kind of given you a little bit of perspective either on another life, another person's choices at life or their skills or abilities or their mindset at life and giving you kind of something to think about and ponder but that's it see you guys next episode